Department of the Dead contains graphic and explicit content that may not be appropriate for some listeners. Opinions and views do not reflect the Department of Defense. Listener discretion is advised. A very special episode of Department of the Dead. I am nervous beyond belief. Thought, introduce yourself. It's the one and only. <laughs> so awkward. Today, speaking of awkwardly introducing someone, our special guest today is none other than Bill Fulton. Bill? <laughs> I have a legend in my house. I'm so fucking nervous. <laughs> Don't pass out. I'm trying not to. It's really hard. I have my little toy. Just a fidget with. Do you like one? Okay. <laughs> Bale, are you nervous? Or are you used to telling your tales for a while? Oh, I'm fine. I... Yeah, he's cool as a cucumber. Daisy just laid next to him after she got done sniffing him. And I'm just like, I'm buzzing with nervous energy right now. But hopefully it'll calm down as this goes on. But we got a cool sneak peek, little insider's look into something that I'm excited for you to see, Thought. So... I'll take it away. Uh, Bill, introduce yourself. Who are you? Hi, my name is Bill Folk. I'm a former service member from the Army. I've served in several different units. I started my Army career in 1975 in the 10th Special Forces Group. Did that for four years. Moved down to the 6th Air Cab at Fort Hood. While at Fort Hood in 82, I got drafted for recruiting duty and did three and a half years in Philadelphia. But I had a great time. Recruiting was fun. I got great advice from the guy that recruited me into the army, which I think helped with my success. And then, but leaving recruiting duty, I wanted to go back into special operations, but I, and I had always wanted to go to ranger school. So I decided to submit a packet and volunteer for ranger school. And I w went from my office, which was in Southampton, Pennsylvania, drove the packet because back then it was all paperwork. I drove the packet to my company commander, drove it to the battalion commander in Philadelphia, and I drove it to DC. And I took it to the guy at the Department of the Army, and I said, hey, I want to go to ranger school. I want to volunteer to be a ranger. And he's like, you really want to go? And I'm like, yeah. And so that's how that whole thing started. In 86, because I was a staff sergeant, I had to go through RIP, which was ranger indoctrination, pre-ranger, and ranger school consecutively before I could go to the battalion. So fortunately for me, I was physically, mentally prepared. I got through all three with no issues. And in November of 86, I was assigned to 2nd Ranger Battalion at Fort Lewis. Real quick, I actually have lived in before. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. My family's from around the Philadelphia area. Yeah, my office was straight road. <laughs> yeah, I, that's funny. I know exactly oh, okay. that area. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember a place called Fishers? Fishers? No. I think it was on... Street Road. Back in the 80s, it was a restaurant, nightclub, bar. That was my hangout. Oh, all right. I'll have to check it out when I go home. See if you're on the wall. <laughs> She's already more. <laughs> yeah. Like, what is this? Why is it selling insurance? This used to be a great establishment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've seen greatness once before. So, thought anything you want to add? No, I'm excited. You are like new on my radar. I haven't heard your story until recently when Amanda brought you up. And randomly on my Instagram timeline, you popped up with your story that somebody else shared. I was like, oh shit. Yeah, that's the guy. So timing is cool. And I read all about you. So I'm excited. 
So interestingly enough, how I found out about you was I was listening to the book Ranger Game about the bank robbery. Mm-hmm. And that was a very in-depth, detailed book. I recommend it. But I just, I'm wondering, were you around? Like when that, obviously you were around, but like, we'll get into like your post-army. Yeah, yeah I was part of the army and Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, did you have any friends that like kind of gave you the inside scoop? Yeah, I said, yeah, there were some rangers that talked about it. And, you know, <laughs> but the joke was, you know, don't forget to remove the front plate. Oh, so yeah, attention to detail. <laughs> attention to detail. Remove the front plate. Oh my God. Yeah, it's like the FBI is there. Aside from the plate, they were like, this is the perfect bank robbery. They were in out. They had timers. Meanwhile, like when you read the book, how they recounted, they're like, I had no fucking idea what I was doing, man. Like I just blindly went into it and Elliot, the guy, he was like yelling directions. They're like, then they fell in to do what what they were doing. But the other guys that he recruited, they were just a bunch of knuckleheads and this little ringleader, like Mm -hmm. literally E4 mafia orchestrating this entire thing. Mm -hmm. So I guess we'll have to have another episode about that. (laughs) But that's all I really had to add. So curious about a follow-up. Um... But yeah, so do you want to get into the the history? What was it like in the 80s? Uh, in a battalion or in Tacoma? Just anywhere. Uh, well, <laughs> battalion, I love battalions. I mean, it was everything that I wanted it to be. It was extremely difficult, lots of deployments. It was the kind of thing where standards mattered. Our, our sergeant major was Leon Guerrero, and everything was, hey, Ranger, what's the standard? What's the standard? So that, I really got into that. Uh, when I joined the Army in 1975, after Vietnam ended, and I took my oath of enlistment, I meant it. You know, when I joined the Range Battalion and got assigned to 275, when I stand in battalion formation, and we would recite the Ranger Creed, I meant it. And so I was really happy to be there. And at that time, it was the kind of place where you had to earn your position every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no failing to meet the standards. Um, if you fuck up, you're gone. Mm-hmm. And so it was great. We did a lot of great training, worked with great other, other rangers that, you know, were just awesome. But outside of the Army, I was living in the Berks, a single guy living in the Berks, and I wanted a house. And uh, I've done housing projects before in my life. I've done rehabs and all kinds of things. So um, Teach me. <laughs> Teach me. <laughs> <laughs> so You see that um, fence? It's ugly. I'll I, show you. I, I was looking for a fixer-upper, and I knew nothing at all about Tacoma. And I think I maybe had been to the Tacoma Mall once. I really didn't know Jack about it. But I went and saw this realtor in Lakewood, and I was really driven by price because single six, we were doing okay, but we weren't making shit for money. And <laughs> so I bring out this list to say, go look at these houses. And the first house that was on the list was $10,000. Very little information about it, except the house was condemned. So that was the first place I went, drove by, looked at the house, looked at the neighborhood, Walked through the house because it was they had no windows, no doors, no plumbing, no wiring, just the shell of this house that had been originally built like in 1912. And I was familiar with century-old structures and stuff even older than that. So anyway, I went back to the realtor and I said, I want to buy it. And at the time in 1987, it was a nice, quiet neighborhood. I had a lot of mostly elderly people. It was an old neighborhood, mostly elderly people living around me, very friendly, kind of a racially mixed sort of a place and everybody was really happy to see that somebody had bought the house and was going to fix it up. And uh, the first thing I needed to do was get windows and doors in it. And fortunately, all the original wood sashes were there and the old wood sashes with the lead weights. And so I took all that apart, 
I took it to this place that wasn't too far away. I had all the window, windows glazed, put new doors on, got the windows on, got permits for wiring and plumbing and all that stuff. I did the plumbing from the street to the house. I did the wiring, the, the weather head all through the meter base and into the house, completely wired. It. Wow. And when I started, and this took a few months because of course I'm still being deployed with the battalion. So it was like a come and go kind of a thing. When I was around, I'd work on the house. When I was deployed, nothing happened. So about the May timeframe, I decided once I had a functional bathroom, not even finished, just functional. I had a sink, I had a toilet, and I had a shower. When I had a functional bathroom, I was moving in. And that's what I ended up doing. So I got out of the barracks and moved into the house. And I thought that would be better for like working on it. And it was pretty much that's all I did. And then I'd be working on the outside of the house and neighbors would come by and they would talk to me. And I met my next door neighbor who would just stop at me and a gal named Shirley. She was just wonderful. It was, she was funny. So Shirley was just a character and I loved her. She was so awesome. But the funny thing was that her husband and his brother, the two brothers, they, they lived next door. So Mary Sloan was the gal that I bought the house from. Shirley and Mary hated each other. So the two sisters all hated each other. That's the real game so, war. That so was she was, it was so funny. She would talk about, you know, her, her sister-in-law and how much she hated her and all that. It was just funny. And then to the other side of me, on the north side, was a guy named Ruben. And he was a retired Air Force guy. Him and his wife, you know, really nice couple. The Christie's across the street were an older couple. Irene, another character, this gal was, okay, there's no other way, better way to explain it, except she's an old German lady and she was <laughs> drunk all the time. <laughs> And what a character she was. Hell yeah. Drunk. I don't think I ever talked to her once when she was not drunk. I feel like and, we all know somebody that's oh yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So I, was, I thought I was like, I thought I was moving into a great neighborhood. I mean, super nice people. There was this old black guy that used to come up the road and all guessing diabetic because he had his legs amputated and he was not in the very good, not in very good health, but Damn. he'd bring his chair up the road and he'd park in the street in front of my house while I was working. And talk to me and we'd, you know, talk about the army and he wanted to know a lot, you know, stuff about what I was doing. Oh, just a great guy, great neighbors up and down the street. And that's, so that's what it was like in 80, 87, 88, same thing. And then early 89, we started doing, the battalion started doing re rehearsal missions for Panama. So we would deploy, be gone for maybe a month and come back for a month and then gone a month. And then about, and I noticed that there's some, there were some new people on the street that moved in some rental houses. And at first I didn't really pay much attention to them, but then as they started, things started escalating and they became a disruptive factor in the neighborhood and they were screwing with the old people, blocked their cars. They were very disrespectful. You know, somebody be trying to get by and they'd be like, Oh, fuck you. And, uh, you know, it was just bad. And then I ended up asking this girl who lived a few houses down for me. I said, Hey, What's up with this house over here? And she's like, oh, that's a crack house. And I'm like, I didn't even know what a crack house was. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm the kind of guy, like, uh, I try to run my own business and I don't bother people as long as they're not bothering me. And then initially it was what I wanted. I was just like, I'm just going to leave this. I don't know what's going on here. But once it got to the point where this was, it was April when I found out, so maybe June time again, coming back from a deployment and weather had gotten warm and it got really bad. There would be like 15 or 20 gang members hanging out in front of these houses. And in 89, when that when all the gang members moved up from the LA area, there were the Crips and the Bloods. 
So the Bloods were identified by a red bandana. The Crips were identified by a blue bandana. And of course, there was a lot of gang violence associated between the Crips and the Bloods. Well, we had Crips on our street. They were the Hilltop Crips. And there were actually three crack houses. The one closest to me was the main location. And then there were two smaller crack houses down the block. So anyway, they just started screwing with some of these old people. And Shirley would tell me like, what's going on and how they treated people. They would have their cars blocked three or four across the entire street, not letting people buy. And if somebody's like toots their horn, it's like, hey, why don't you move? And they'll be like, fuck you, go around. And, you know, just, just real assholes. And so it got to a point where I was just like, I'm not letting these guys screw with my neighbors and screw with these old people. That's just not going to happen. So sometimes if there was something going on and I was home, I would go across the street and confront them. And, and then they would try to act all badass. And I'm like, listen, you're like some 23-year-old little kid. Get out of here. And uh, they tried to be intimidating to me. But anyway, I just confront them on their bullshit. And uh, when you confronted them, eventually they seemed to back down. So if I'd be like, get your fucking cars out of the street, then they might not do it right away. But when I go back to my house, they're going to move them. They're gone. And they would just play these stupid games of antagonizing, really fucking with the old people. They would try to drive these people out of their homes and out of the neighborhoods. And these people had nowhere to go. And I was just like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. And so I started meeting with some of my other neighbors. And there were some younger younger neighbors that lived a little further down the block. But even like people like Shirley, um, who didn't get out of her house much by like Ruben, he's like, Hey, let's get involved. And we would meet together. We talked about what we needed to do and talk about things like writing down license plates and taking pictures whenever we couldn't. Of course, this is not a day of cell phones. So we're talking like taking pictures with cameras mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and writing down license plates and organizing that information and trying to gather some information to hopefully go to the police and get the police to do something about it. Oh my God. So. We did that. We had several meetings. And of course, again, I've got these deployments to go on. So people would do this stuff while I was gone. And then my next door neighbor, Ruben, it is again, like June timeframe, hooks me up with a video camera and a time-lapse recorder. And we put it in the upstairs window and we were recording on a 72 hour cycle. And uh, because it was like, they'd be like just hanging down in front of the house and not just in, on Ash Street, but all over Tacoma. You see these gang members hanging out on a corner and they've got their little baggie of crack. And you can clearly see the handoff of the bag of crack and taking the money and putting it in their pocket and where it was. And we would go to the police. In fact, we had gathered so much information that I finally found out from talking to some patrol guys that they had a crack abatement team in Tacoma. And it was eight guys. And I'm like, I got to take this stuff down there. So call them up, make it a place. And then I go down there one evening. I've got a bunch of pictures. I'm talking, I'm showing them like, look, man, how, this is not you. How can you deny this? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, "We know what they're doing." And the, but the guy flat out told me, he "said Hey, you know what?" He said, "We got there's eight of us, and there's 1,300 crack houses in Tacoma." Yeah. And he said, "You know, we're doing what we can." And I said, "Well, can, can you do something on Ash Street?" Yeah. <laughs> He's like, "Yeah, we'll get to it." And then uh, then I showed him this one picture, and there were nine guys, nine gang members in this picture. And he holds in his hand, and he knew them all by name. And five of the nine had warrants. And I'm like, we'll go get them. They're right up there, you know, across the street from my house. Arrest them. The guy's like, we can't because there's no room in the jail. So I'm like, so we got this bullshit going on on my street. And these guys, they got warrants for their arrest. And they're just up there hanging out because you can't put them in jail. He said, yeah. 
I was like, well, that's pretty fucked up. Especially for me, I was a young army ranger. I like, like from my older neighbors, people that had lived in this neighborhood for 50 years. And then all of a sudden this shit starts happening. It was like, this is bullshit. But anyway, we kept working at it. And then they organized safe streets. And there were some other neighbors, other neighborhoods that kind of organized similar groups like we had. But Ash Street was considered to be the worst street in Tacoma as far as where the crack houses were. And it, it, it was just a bad, bad spot. Then this guy, oh, Ray Fiatlin was the chief of police at the time. And uh, somehow, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but they decided to call this community meeting at the People Center up on uh, Martin Luther King, and which was a really bad street. I think if you want to find the worst neighborhood, the worst street in any city, you find Martin Luther King and you're there. But uh, that's the way it was in Tacoma. And I Facts. Same way. I mean, long story short, red line districting. Unfortunately, yeah. it's by design and it yeah. sucks. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing yeah. the consequences of people's decisions. Yeah, yeah. And, and MLK was a street where they had lots of gang members hanging out on every corner, mm -hmm. trying, to, trying to deal to people just driving down the road. Anyway, so they have they decided to have this community meeting and... Me and fortunately I was in town, me and my neighbors all went. And I think by this time it was around September. Actually, I need to back this up. I need to tell you one other thing that happened um, really took me by surprise. I remember it was in July and we're my neighbor Ruben had come over and we're sitting on my front porch and we're watching the bullshit that's going on across the street. Just kind of talking and hey, guys, they like, no, they know we're watching them, but they don't give a shit. Yeah. And, um, Anyway, something happened. Somebody called. For some reason, the police showed up. So two patrol cars show up, two officers, and they park right in front of my house. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I watched these guys go across the street. And I was like, wow, finally. Because I had never, we had not seen any police activity at all with all the bullshit that had been going on, you know, since the spring. And, and over the, was it over the dash or over the radio? Like if it was, if it was over the radio, they wouldn't respond. If it was over the dash right in front of them, then they would respond. But the, the, yeah, the these guys, yeah, they came. No, these guys, yeah. they just showed up. Yeah. So the two officers go across the street and there's probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 gang members in, in, in the front yard. And uh, these guys are trying to just calmly go over there and talk to them. And then all of a sudden <laughs> the gang members are like, fuck you motherfuckers and get the fuck out of here. We don't got to talk to you and blah, 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 blah. You know, and I'm big. I'm watching this shit. I mean, just absolutely, completely disrespectful. And I'm thinking to myself, man, these guys are going thumped. And because uh, as a kid growing up in Rhode Island, when the police talked to you, it's like, yes, sir, no, sir. And you complied with everything they said. There was no bullshit. And uh, so I'm watching this. I, I cannot believe it. The shit that is just going on and coming out of their mouths. Yeah. And these two officers are just standing there, like taking this crap. And I was in shock. And then, anyway, when they came back to their cars, I went down to meet one of the guys at the patrol car. And I said, what is up with that? I said, why are you taking that shit from these guys? And I was like, I don't get it. And he exactly what he said. Hey, man, freedom of speech. And I'm like, bullshit. I said, that's not a freedom I swore to defend. I said, that's disrespectable. And I was like, I, you guys shouldn't be taking that crap. He said, well, you know, because of the political environment in the city, and uh, the policies of the police department, they, their hands were tied. Yeah. They couldn't do shit. They had to take that abuse and so there wasn't jack they could do about it. <clears throat> oh, the other thing was in talking to the crack abatement team, mm -hmm. we showed them pictures and video of the hand to hand. You can see, clearly see the baggie with the crack and the guy taking the money. And he said, prosecutors won't prosecute based on that. 
I'm like, well, what, they're not selling fucking Avon. I have a theory why. But yeah. It's, it's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> and, 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 because and, and, they're like, just like, yeah, we gave it to them. Fuck. Yeah, yeah, Too yeah. much, too much out of control. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they, uh, I'm like, you got to be shitting me. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely obvious what's going on. And it was like, well, we can't do shit. I'm like, well, that's fucked up. So anyway, so then fast forward, we end up at that community meeting. And uh, my group is sitting up front. And the Ray Fiatlin's the chief of the police and just a policeman politician. And he's just rattling off the company line. And it's just total bullshit. And uh, trying to say that the problem's not that bad. We're doing a good job. And I'm like, you're bullshit. So finally, they got to a point where we had the opportunity to ask questions. And I already knew from talking to the crack abatement team that there's 1,300 crack houses in the city of Tacoma. It's not a big city. Yeah. And he's tapped to answer out some issues. And finally, I've just flat out asked him, are there 1,300 crack houses in the city? And he was kind of like, well, how do you know that? And I kind of, I'm just trying to force an answer out of him. And he said, well, there are over 1,000. And I'm like, okay, that's still a lot. You know, you're not going to admit to that 1,300, but over 1,000. Then he tried to say, well, last year we shut this many down. And I'm like, did you shut them down or did you relocate them? I said, because you evict them from one property and just move into another property and set up shop all over again. They're not doing shit. Finally, I think he got to the point where we were so uncomfortable that he decided that my group needed to be cut from the herd and sent to this other room where we could meet separately with one of his assistant chiefs and discuss the issues that were going on Ash Street. And so we all get up and move and uh, we're talking to us and it's all the same, just lip service. And uh, what was interesting, I didn't realize that at the time, one of the people that moved with us was a reporter from the distribute. And I didn't realize the guy was in the room. And we're flat out telling this guy everything we've been doing for how long we've been writing down license plates, everything about, you know, taking pictures, taking video camera, where the video camera is, everything about what's been going on and the effort of the people on Ash Street to try to get something to happen. And the next day, I remember it was a Wednesday, this page article came out in the News Tribune and it had a picture of the 23rd Nash and some shots of the gang members and talking about the people on Ash Street and our efforts to try to do something about it. Well, it had two effects. The first thing it did was cut the vehicle traffic down to almost nothing. Maybe the people coming from a different part of Tacoma, you know, or Seattle or wherever they're coming from. They read the paper and all like, yeah, well, we got to stay off Ash Street because we don't have a picture taken. And so vehicle traffic went to almost nothing. And then it made a huge difference. But it also really pissed those guys off. Mm -hmm. They knew something was up. And I can remember going to meet with my next door neighbor, Shirley. And this really is after the meeting. Because like, huh? we, that's really sneaky, though, because the only vehicle traffic bent would be somebody going to deal drugs. You know, then it's like the police are there. Like, that's pretty obvious where they're going. Yeah. And yeah, I'll just yeah. pass it through the street yeah. and the police can actually pay attention to it. It's kind of sneaky yeah. in a way. Yeah. In the neighborhood, there's alleyways on both sides. Ash Street, houses on the east and the west side. Yep. We have alleyways behind, but a lot of those houses didn't have alleyway access. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of people end up parking on the street. Our neighbors that lived either end of the block still had to drive through that bullshit to get home. But that really ticked him off. But it was the first thing that actually seemed to make a difference. Yeah. Like, holy crap, you know, getting an article in the newspaper finally got somebody's attention. He wasn't the police department and he wasn't the politicians running the city, but people took notice and stayed away from Ash Street.
anyway, I was meeting with Shirley and a couple other neighbors and I came out of Shirley's house. And of course, none of the gang houses like right across the yeah. street. And they knew the video camera was in my window. And uh, they come brought me out there like, hey man, you gotta shut that camera down. And you gotta do it all like, what? Well, no. I was like, hey, why don't you quit doing crack? But then I wouldn't need to have a video camera in my front window. And they did all this shit. I'm like, what? Doing it. They're trying to intimidate me. And I'm like, yeah, that ain't happening. I'll get the fuck out of here. Just trying to work from home, man. As I walk away, you know, I can, I can, uh, I can hear one of them tell the other guys like, I'm going to shoot that army son of a bitch. Oh, like, cause that's all they knew about me. Like, like that I was just in the army, you know? So getting to the good part. Yeah. yeah. Hey Bill, have they ever, did they ever try messing with your house? And after the shootout, there was a couple of times when they did, but they were unsuccessful. Yeah, it did not much happen. Like prior to, did they like gotcha. throw anything at it? Like, I don't know. What, what's yeah, like they, a juvenile? They, they tried to throw like a Molotov cocktail in my front yard, but I had these, I had put these uh, barricades up over the window. So it just, it, it hit, it, it, I don't know what kind of bottle it was, but it like hit the thing. It didn't break. It like just rolled off and landed in my yard. Just, you know, it's <laughs> a hole in the grass. You know, Damn it, like, I gotta go to Home Depot now. Fuck you. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, so in, in meeting with the neighbors, we're like, wow, we made some progress. So we just thought, okay, you know what? We need to do something like neighbors do. And we wanted to have a neighborhood barbecue. So it turned out because nobody else wanted to volunteer their house. But, and I had the space. I had a big side yard at the time. You're also uh, a ranger. <laughs> Who's likely heavily on. Yeah. So they, yeah. Uh, so anyway, so <laughs> well, we, planned it, we planned this neighborhood barbecue September 23rd. And it's just going to be like, you know, hey, all the neighbors, their kids, anybody that wanted to come, the friendly neighbors. And uh, we planned this thing and had, had this, like this neighborhood barbecue. And, and funny thing is that, that there was like, I mean, there, you know, soft drinks, water, and there was beer like in a cooler, but like for some, nobody's drinking. Nobody mm-hmm. was drinking the beer. Yeah. And I was, I just, it was like, yeah, no. Uh, I had a couple of ranger buddies that would hang out at my house a lot. You know, what I call barracks ranch guys that yeah. just like, you know, live in the barracks, but wanted to get out. And they were interested in the project that I was in, the rehabbing of the house. And they thought, hey, I could come hang out with him and I could learn some things and yeah. help him out, have some skills. So anyway, they, uh, so they were there also. And, but they were at my house a lot. We got probably this, I, this, I bet there's like 35 people, you know, hanging out in the yard. And just having a good time and talking and we're feeling like, hey, you know, people are kind of relaxed and it's like, wow, it's not so bad. But then the shit started mid-afternoon, then the gang started like, you know, harassing people and yelling shit and and, uh, just like, you know, it just started with a lot of verbal harassment. And then they were picking shit up and like throwing it at people in the yard. And, And I mean, I mean, anything from like just rocks apples cans file anything they could pick up off the ground and they're like throwing it at people and i'm like this is bullshit i it's like hey, i'm never so me and my me and the two rangers we decided we go and we're armed mm-hmm. and we're not brandishing it but yeah. it was pretty obvious that we were armed so we're like we're gonna go across the street because there was no way i'd go over there unarmed to talk to him but I, anyway yeah. so we're like hey and i'm like hey where's marco and they're like fuck you and like why do you want to talk to marco? follow and I'm like, that, that, yeah, that, that, that's the guy's name. And his girlfriend like, oh, fuck you. You're not talking to Marco. And I was yeah. like, hey, fine, whatever. I said, you motherfuckers need to quit harassing us. You need to leave these people alone. Quit throwing shit at my house. Just back the fuck off. You do your little thing over here. We're over there. Leave us the fuck alone. Yeah. And they're like, 
fuck you, motherfucker. Take down that fucking camera and blah, 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 blah. And then finally, then there's one guy who looks at me and said, motherfucker, we're going to come back tonight. We're going to shoot you up and burn your house down. Oh. And I looked at him and I was like, that would be a mistake. <laughs> and uh, I was like, look, just leave us the fuck alone. And then we went back across the street. And they, for like maybe 30 minutes, things were like calm, but then the shit started all over again. And one of the jobs that I had in the range battalion was I was the, I was kind of the meter greeter spokesperson for the battalion. So anytime someone came from visiting, it doesn't matter, like a politician, an educator, someone, anybody, veterans, whoever, anybody that had scheduled a visit to the battalion, I was the person, I was the meter greeter, take them around, talk about the life of a ranger, what happens in battalion and show them around. And uh, at one point in time, I must, I had done a tour for, there were media people as a part of this group. Yeah. And I ended up getting a business card from a guy named Dan Bopel, who was, had taken a tour of Italian and he worked for the New Tribune, which was like, you know, of course the local Tacoma paper. I think I read his paper because I was going through the archives and stuff and I feel like I remember oh, yeah, seeing he wrote, that he, yeah, he, he wrote the initial article. Yeah. 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 I called up Dan. I thought, hey, you know what? The newspaper seems to be the only way things are getting done. So I called him up and he remembered me from battalion and he knew the story of Ash Street. And I'm like, I invited him to the barbecue. I said, hey, you know, maybe come out, you know, talk to the neighbors, see what's going on here. Be for yourself what life is like on this street. And uh, and maybe, you know, put it out there. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'll come. Journalism. Yeah. And so... um, as it turned out, he did come and he brought this guy, Russ Carmack, who is a photographer, probably one of the best photographers in the New Tribune. And uh, so Russ brings this, again, again he's, you know, he's got a 35 millimeter camera, a 600 millimeter lens, and he's like, where's the video camera? And I said, upstairs. So I took him to the room where the video camera was and he's looking out the store. He's got the 600 millimeter lens and he's, got, he's positioned up there and he's taking pictures. How big was that camera? Oh, it's I mean, like- the lens was like freaking huge. <laughs> Yeah. How so it was your video camera. That's what I always wanted to know. Oh, well, oh, it, the, the, video, no, the video camera, again, this is like, you know, like uh, 80s. It was pretty yeah. big. The video camera was big. And the time lapse recorder, you know, we were recording on, on VHS tapes. It was all pretty big. Oh, my God. But, um, your but it, was, it worked, <laughs> you know, and it had, and, 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 for, and it had actually had pretty good night vision. So we even got good recordings at night. But anyway, so he's up there and there's still some drug dealing going on. So he's got, again, getting pictures of, you know, hand-to-hands, money, the little baggie. And, uh, but the other thing was he was kind of keeping account of all of a sudden all these gang members started showing up and like, you know, gathering in this guy's yard. And then there were two cars parked in front of the house and they were like a car would pull up and they would unload a shitload of guns from the car in the street to the car that was parked and put them all in the trunk. And then he'd send word downstairs. He said, hey, Bill, they just brought a whole, another load of guns. Oh and I'd be like, well, how many guns do you think they have? And he's like, I don't know, but it's a lot. And uh, he was kind of getting a little worried. Yeah. And so um, anyway, he was he was kind of providing us this intel. And I would look across the street and watch. And then and things started kind of escalating a little bit. And I thought, like, we have a lot of people over here and, uh, you know, with their kids. And so I gathered up all the neighbors together. And I said, hey, look, this is kind of where we're at. We're at a point here where we need to make a decision. We got to either like, you know, let this thing go right now or we're going to stand our ground. I said, if we choose to stand our ground, I said, you got to find another place for your kids. Because if shit hits the fan, I don't want the kids here. Mm-hmm. I don't want any kids actually getting shot these assholes. Mm-hmm. And all the parents agreed. 
and they're like, you know, we, we get, we can make arrangements. And so, you know, kids went to grandparents' house or other you know, neighbors outside of the neighborhood or wherever it was, but the adults are like, we're staying, you know, we're not going to leave. We're staying. If you're staying, we're staying. I'm like, I'm staying. So I wonder what um, those kids are doing these days. Huh? What those kids are doing these days is they're probably like our age, like a little bit older. Yeah, probably yeah, like, yeah. what happened? Oh shoot, we were part of okay, wow, part of history. Yeah. yeah. And as I thought, you know, I was of course being a lower staff sergeant, living living in town, I didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, anything that I could get for free was good. And I had opportunity to pick some scrap lumber from North Fork from something that they had demolished. And they had this lumber that was massive. It was 16 feet long, 12 inches, like real 12 inches wide and three inches thick. And I got six of these boards because I thought if I was going to build a deck or do this using lumber, yeah. I thought this could come in handy I, or something. I love taking shit from on post. Like yeah. you get boxes from the hospital. Yeah. They, those are all clean. You, yeah. They're not like, so yeah. Go to your on-first hospital. Yeah. You got medical supplies and shit that you got want to do a moulage for Halloween. Go yeah. and see expired. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, so I had this lumber sitting on the side of my house, and I thought I need to create some cover. So if some shooting started, that people would have an opportunity to hit the ground and get behind something where they would be protected. So I took a couple of soul horses, I set them up across the front yard, and then I stacked this lumber. So it was like 16 feet long, each, each board, 12 inches high and three inches thick. And there were two layers of it. So basically 16 by three, by six inches thick. And I thought any small rounds, nothing's going through that. And, uh, and then there were some other places around my house where people could, you know, dive down and take cover. But so I wrecked that, but that was like right out in the middle of the yard. And, um, then again, things kind of started getting worse. So there was a point where they were doing a lot of just this hand signal, making a gun and like pointing at people and shooting and trying to be intimidating. I had somebody do that to me once. He was in a VW Beetle. He was not intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> Boston yeah. drivers are fucking crazy. I'm sorry. Yeah. They are. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, it looked like, I mean, and, and then, then getting all the info from Russ about how many people were across the street and in the house and in the house. Uh, the amount of guns that they were moving over there. And I thought to myself, I couldn't believe it. these people may be stupid enough to actually like, you know, try to carry out this threat. And uh, by 6.30, you know, a, a car comes by, driver, a guy in the passenger seat, and the guy in the passenger seat gets right, they're going slow. The guy in the passenger seat gets right in front of my house and just fires off a round. And uh, I, again, I think, huh? Where did it hit? Oh, just shot straight up in the air. Oh, they don't, give, they don't give a shit. They're like, well, the, like, they come down. That's fucking they scary. come down somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've heard that yeah. way. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, it's stupid. <laughs> but that, so anyway, so they again, I think they're trying to be intimidating and you know get us to leave, and we're like, nope. But when that happened again, with the information from Russ, looking at what's going across the street, my neighbors are like, we're staying. I thought we need some backup. <laughs> so I was, I was one. Of the, I was a person who was well known in battalion. A lot of people knew me. Wait. Before we get to this, can we take a quick ad break? So we'll be back after a word from our sponsors. So we're back. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Okay. So you want to get into after the warning shot? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was, oh, no. I was the person that was well-known in battalion. And being a guy that believes in the Ranger Creed, 
I decided that in this situation that I thought it was appropriate yeah. to call on my range of brothers. So I called the staff duty NCO and I called the CQ charge headquarters in every company. So the four companies, headquarters, Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie. And I said, hey, this is Charter Folk. I said, I'm about to come under attack at my house now. And I need every available ranger that you can round up here as quickly as you can. And I said, uh, personal weapons are advised <laughs> and uh, bring fighting ammo. And, um, so it shows up with chili, like, oh shit, I forgot. <laughs> so, I didn't get the message. I mean, a lot of these guys knew me. They knew I lived in Tacoma. And the Rangers at the time were familiar with problems with gang members, like mm -hmm. from fights in the mall yeah. and other things. Rangers being accused by the gang members of being skinheads. They just didn't quite understand what an army ranger was. So anyway, so they knew what was going on. But being a Saturday night, a lot of Rangers were just gone doing their own thing. But they managed to go around the battalion and they got 15 Rangers together, all off duty, civilian clothes, personal weapons, and sent them to my house. I just love it. I love it. Yeah. I love it so much because I'm just thinking about me on staff duty. If I got that call, like I need this many people. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> this, this is not, is this an SIR, a battalion SOP? What do I? Yeah. So they, uh, I, yeah. And, and the funny thing is it was all year we'd been doing re these rehearsal missions yeah. for Panama. So guys were like, uh, you know, preparing for combat. Yeah. And uh, so they had the right mindsets. But um, anyway, about 20 minutes or so, Rangers show up at my house. They were, they came in through the back, through the alleyway and uh, trying to keep them out of plain view of the all the gang members. And then I decided that we need to basically take up a this defensive posture and taste yeah. these guys attacked. And I felt like if they attacked, they were going to attack from all sides. Um, it wasn't just going to be from the front. They figured these guys, with the amount of people they had and the amount of guns they had, that they would try to completely surround the house and we would just get it. So anyway, so I took the uh, the Rangers, I briefed them up what was going on. And then I said, I need you guys to work with these civilians. And because the civilians were all armed, it was actually funny because mostly men, but there was this one neighbor, this little short back lady, little lady Shirley, and she was like, uh-uh, I'm sticking with the Rangers. Oh my God. And we had different positions around the house, everything covering the side, the front. I can show you. Oh, this is it. Drew the diagram right here. Nice. See this okay. All right, here we go. Um, this is Ash Street. And then, okay, so south, north, east, and west. I'm on the east side, the west side. And then I put in here like, so Reuben is in the house next door to yeah. me. And then, you know, there were houses across the alleyway, but they weren't really that involved in our group because they weren't really affected by it. But directly across the street is the Christie's, this really old couple, then Irene, the drunk German lady, and then this guy, Richard. <laughs> uh, and then there was the gang house, like right there. So everything was going diagonally across the street. Yeah. So we implanted oh, that. Oh, yeah, I'll kind of just show you. So on the front of my house, there's actually a stairwell down here where it goes into this. I kind of have a walk around crawl space. Mm -hmm. There were two people in there. There was a guy around the corner over here. Then, then this, this is the area where the big barricade was. Actually, it was further forward because you could, you could see past the house. So we had uh, two people on each end of this thing where they could see. And my yard slopes up. So this going this direction slopes down to the street. And then it slopes up the hill this way. So you had the high ground. Yeah. So the high ground is the alleyway. Uh -huh. But I was concerned. And even the alleyway, it's at this end starts low. 
and then it gets high and then it goes low again. So this is definitely higher than everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so I was worried about a car coming up and us getting hit by plunging fire. So I had this old 73 Ford F-250 pickup and I decided I was going to park my pickup to block the alleyway this way. Like and uh, so nothing could get every by guy's dream right <laughs> and then and then so oh, yeah. we had we had some rangers on the corners of the house here but there was also a group that they actually i think these guys from moved from here to here and i didn't know it but these guys had prepared they brought sandbags oh. and so the group the two guys that were actually, <laughs> I think they actually got sandbags filled them up and they made this like sandbag fighting position up here and the four of them were like covering pretty much four different sectors of fire this way. And then we had some people down here and there were people in the house. We had a ranger and a civilian upstairs in that bedroom with the thing, any window that had a view, there was somebody in position that was looking out. And where was um, Shirley? Uh, where was Shirley? No, Shirley <laughs> stayed home. I just, I, I talked to her. I said, like, I knew her, the layout of her house. I was like, like, you just stay in the back, stay in the middle, you know? And she was very supportive. This is like last resort. Where would you put Shirley? Like just oh, oh, oh no, 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 no. There's two Shirley's. Oh, there's two. Two Shirley's. Yeah. Ooh, the other Shirley, the other. Yeah. So the little short black lady. Yeah. Just, just find her. Yeah. So she was up front. Oh, <laughs> she, no, she, oh yeah. She, I found her. If I remember, she, she wanted to be like. Get out there. Rangers. Out there, you know what I mean? She was, man, she had her own, she had her own gun. She was ready. So. It's badass. Anyway, position, you know, and it hasn't gotten dark yet, but we're laying like we're laying low and being discreet about when people are moving around. They're not brandishing weapons. Nobody's doing anything to to, to egg it on, but we're just being prepared. Mm -hmm. And then Russ is still in the upstairs window. But the funny thing about it is it's interesting. All these houses were built around the same time, around 1912, and basically look the same. Mm -hmm. Ruben's house was kind of a light purple with a different color trim. My house was tan with a light blue trim. Mm -hmm. Shirley's house was yellow. But in the, it was funny thing is, in the dark, our two houses look very much the same. Yeah. You know, like you really can't distinguish the color. Is it those catalog houses, like those Sears homes they or whatever? Like okay, yeah. 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 So everybody, we're just kind of laying low, waiting, and I'm just making the rounds, checking on everybody, see if anybody needs anything, or everybody's good, and everybody's like, you know, we're here. And Ranger's we're like kind of mentoring the civilians and they're like sharing some knowledge. They're talking about everything from like trigger squeeze and aiming and all. They're just like tell, giving these, sharing their knowledge with all, with the people that they were paired up with, mm -hmm. which I think was good because, and it wasn't planned that way. They just did it. Yeah. Cause hey, the sua sponte of a ranger, they just did it. Yeah. And what uh, was good because I think it gave the civilians you know, felt they felt more confident in being there. If you just handed me the go to that window, I'd be like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. No. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so having this, the ranger civilians paired up, yeah, it was a really good thing. And uh, plus, you know what? They, they got the civilians, the neighbor, they got skin in this game. You know what? They live on this block. They're a part of all yeah. this thing. They've been affected by it since these gangs moved in. Yeah. So, anyway, it got dark at about uh, 9.30 ish. We had all the lights out, all the lights out in the house, lights out at Shirley's house, lights Shirley Sloan. And Reuben had his house. It was all darkened. So the only thing was some, we had like down the block a little bit was one street light that was slightly illuminating things, but it was dark. And uh, you could hear activity, but you couldn't see shit. And then I remember I was standing like out front here somewhere. I was like, they standing up and I'm talking to some of the people up front here. And then it was about 930. And then all of a sudden it was like... It, 
and being on a military firing range and somebody says commence fire because it yeah. just went from silence to pow, 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 gunfire coming oh. from every different direction. So I just like dropped to the ground just to assess like the situation, what's going on. And I, I can hear rounds hitting my house. I can hear rounds that are hitting Ruben's house and they get glass shattering and that, but it really seemed like, um, spent a lot of time on those windows. I'd be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's not like they were taking time to take aim. They were just shooting randomly at whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the spray of bullets that I got on my house and the neighbor's house, I get up, I'm kind of like crouched down and I go, I went to the back and I checked on these people as I was going, make sure nobody's been hit, right? Everybody's good. Go through the back door. I wanted to see if anybody, the ladies were all fine. Um, they were between, there was a, there's a bedroom here and a bathroom where, yeah, there's nothing that's going to get through the house and get into that point. Mm-hmm. I go to the front. I'm actually standing in this front room right here and I can hear bullets hitting the house and I, but I'm looking at the wall and it's, nothing's coming through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, unless it's the window, you know, bullets are not penetrating the house. Yeah. And, uh, I, I holler up to the guy upstairs. He's like, all good. I was like, how about Russ? He's Russ is gone. I'm like, Russ is the photographer. Yeah. And so I'm like, Oh, I was gonna, that was my question. I was like, was the photographer still there? Yeah. That would have been when the gunfire started, he got the fuck out of there. <laughs> and I so I bunkered down, like don't run. You don't know. Yeah. Oh my God. Because this, he's a, this is, so this is the first one, but he's in an upstairs window that, you know, it was upstairs window up uh-huh. here. That had a direct clear line of sight across the street. Mm-hmm. So the um, anyway, so then after assessing like what's going on in the house, then I was like, I gotta go check on the people in the back. So and I was waiting for this other guy to come up. This buddy of mine, Gene, was gonna show up, and because uh, I had called him, he was a former Army Ranger. We were friends, mm-hmm. and uh, so I called him up, and I'm like, Hey, uh, can you come out? He's like, Hell yeah! Mm-hmm. And he had been to my house a bunch of times, so I was waiting for him to get there. Mm-hmm. So I come out the door back door here and uh lots lots of gunfire going on so i decided i gotta get down because again this is the high high ground up here and uh, so i start to kind of like high crawl up the driveway this way and again it's dark as i'm high crawling up up the driveway i come across russ and he's like laying it laying on the ground in the open out here you know and as i go by him i try to think why the hell would you be out in the open here you know but he's on the ground he's down low and uh, so as I go by him, I'm like, man, I sure, I sure should hope somebody calls 911. Yeah. And he's like, well, why don't you go do that? And I'm like, well, I'm a little busy right now oh, as I crawl by. And I'm like, I got time to call 911. So anyway, by the time I get to the end of the driveway, here comes this vehicle like flying up. It was my buddy Gene and he was driving one of those little, little Bronco 2 things. Oh, my God. So he like whips it in the driveway and just parks it like right here. What does he have? He's got an AR that's right behind the seat. Hell yeah. As we're talking, we're standing. So he and I are standing like on this side of the vehicle. And all of a sudden, this freaking car just comes flying up the alleyway. And they didn't know that we had blocked it off. There was no there was no getting out. So this car comes flying up. And the driver and the passenger are just shooting around like handguns, semi-automatic handguns. Oh, shit. And they're firing at us. So so Gene pulled, whips out that AR. And they're blasting the shit out of his, his Bronco. Oh. And he whips out that AR and just starts unloading. And I had a... Colt Trooper 350, 357. So I'm shooting across the hood. And, um, you know, the car never made it this far. It was probably only around here. Yeah. And like, you know, just just blasted the windshield. And and we are very certain that the two, they got hit. And because uh, all of a sudden that car just like banged it in reverse and backed out of the, backed out of the alleyway and it was gone. Mm-hmm. 
and and James Ford Bronco, it got it got shot to shit. And it was kind of funny because I remember him talking about there's a freaking bullet lodged in his steering column. Oh. It was like, <laughs> what the fuck? So then they went back. And then up front, across the street, kind of over here, it wasn't one of the cars where they had um, stashed the guns, but there was this old piece of shit Granada parked over there. I don't remember, though. It was like, oh, if anybody remembers what a Granada is. I was going to say, I have no idea. And anyway, there was a car parked over here, and there was a guy that decided to... Uh, I was joked around. I said, he's going to John Wayne it because he's just going to charge the house from across the street and shooting it the whole time. And then the guy, the ranger that was in the position right here at the 45 and shot him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's kind of funny because I would tell the story about this guy and his name was also Bill. And, uh, but of course, you know, you're leaving the army and then you like kind of lose track of people. I, I saw him like years later, it was probably like five years ago. We had, I met, I seen him at this ranger gathering and I'm like, Hey, Hey, I just, I got to confirm this story because I've been telling it for, you know, 30 years. And I said, you are the guy that was behind the barricade that shot the guy that was running across the street, shot him with a 45. Oh, the guy that was running towards you. He, yeah. yeah Bill shot the guy that was running Okay, and he went down and, uh, and it was so funny because I said, you shot him in the shoulder. He said, yeah, that was me. He said, but I, ha- but I have to admit, he said, I was aiming center mass. Got a little excited. And anyway, uh, yeah, so he went down. And then um, there, there was another guy that got shot somewhere down the street over here. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the interesting thing was most of the shooting, that had, all the gang-related shooting happened between like the Crips and the Bloods. Yeah. You know, there's not like any, uh, any civilians like- were engaging him or whatever. But, um, you know, in the process of that, they didn't hang around and wait for EMS. If a gang member got shot, you know, they, before the police arrived or anybody else, anybody that was shot, wounded, whatever, their gang members dragged them away, took them somewhere, got them treatment somehow, somewhere. I don't even, I don't know. Those ambulance bills are out of control. Oh yeah. Okay. yeah. So they, so they didn't hang around and, uh, you know, so in the minutes that the shooting was taking place, um, and, and, you know, the thing about the Rangers or, you know, they're originally going to shoot at something if they have a target. And I did tell them, you know, I said, you know, you, if you can't shoot the direction of a muzzle flash, so they can't advance on us. So if all you can see is a muzzle flash, like, you know, some gang members, like, you know, hiding behind the corner of a house or hiding behind a car and you can see the muzzle flash as it's, you know, they're shooting toward you, just shoot back in that direction and that'll keep them from advancing on us. So, you know, in an estimated 300 rounds that were fired that night, you know, I, the, the range didn't fire that much. You know, they were, they ranged only shot if they had a target. The 300 rounds were, you know, in, in the, in the two houses. And then it was kind of funny, the, not for the guy, but it, I, the first police car on the scene. So we're all Where's out here. Question? The first, the first police car on the scene is coming from, this is Ash Street and the 23rd is, is down here a little bit further. And this guy, I can, I can hear him as like to desire to go. And this guy's hauling ass down Ash Street. And he's not from the he's not from the area. Um, he was an officer that got called in from another sector to go to respond to this report of gun activity and gunshots and all this other crap. Anyway, I'm so by this time I'd moved back down and I was in the vicinity of this barricade and I was standing up and all of a sudden I could see the car and he gets down like practically in front of my house. It's a hot September night and he's got the windows are down, you know, and and the gang members don't give a shit. They're still shooting. And so all of a sudden, this guy, he gets down to ride in here, 
And then he's not getting yeah, no gunfire coming from us, but it's coming from, you know, across the street. Yeah. And this guy is like, man, all of a sudden, man, he just caught that thing in reverse and smashed it with the pedal. And he was like burning rubber, going back down the street this way, got back to the intersection, spun around, and it was like gone. Because I remember, like, like, I moved forward, and I was like, uh-oh. I would have got a picture of that. Thing. <laughs> there goes the police. I would have loved to have heard his call back to the dispatch, because it would have been probably one of those diehard moments, like, Jesus Christ, motherfucker, the coppers, I've got to go. <laughs> I never got to hear this call back. I'm sure it was intense. He just, like, looks, <clears> he just, like, puts it. Like, no, yeah, like, not today. Yeah, yeah. A couple minutes later, you know, it was, it, it didn't really get quiet, but there was a lull in the, in the gunfire. Things kind of got quiet. So I went from here and then I went back, I went up to the alleyway and I'm trying to like listen and see what's going on. And again, checking on people as I go. And um, I remember sta I'm standing in the middle of the alleyway up here and it's like dead quiet. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, I, I feel this like, you know, hand on the back of my neck as I'm being like forced to the ground. And then about the time I hit the ground, I knew it was a policeman on top of me. Yeah. About the time I hit the ground, the freaking gunfire started again. And he's like, what the fuck? And, uh, and I said, Hey man, I said, you better tell you, tell well, you guys, I said, tell your guys, be careful. I said, uh, you know, tell, watch out. They, they, they're, they're shooting at us from every direction. Da, 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 da. And, uh, it was so funny because I guess by the way I was feeding him info, he says to me, so look, who the fuck is in charge around here? And I said, I, don't know, like, I am. I'm the homeowner. <laughs> I guess I am. And so, um, and I said, look, this is what's going on. And he was a guy that was familiar with the gang activity on Ash Street, all yeah. the bullshit that was going on. And uh, He's like, oh, I see. so, so, so he got, he got off of me and got on the radio and, and they, you know, they have a, on, the, in the, on their police radios, they have like an all call button. It's like an emergency yeah. button. And then, and when an officer hits that freaking button, that means like everybody. Like officer comes. down. Uh, they all come. And, uh, but they came in, no lights, no sirens, totally blacked out. And uh, so they were all parked, you know, all the cars are parked away. And then they moved in on foot. And uh, so quickly, they didn't spend, once they figured out what was going on, they basically just came through my yard and then they chased them down down North. on ash street south, south and there's a park at the end of the road down here and uh that's kind of where all the gangs went to yeah. but they kind of got corralled in there because once you get into that park there's only one way out and so they ended up all down there and a lot of them had ditched their guns along the way or whatever but some of them had them and uh so then they uh you know some so they were they, there were a bunch of police officers down there and then some stayed with us here and then they were like, hey, we need you guys to come down there and identify them. But unfortunately, I was like, you no matter know. what the situation is, you still, I still have integrity. And I'm like, and I'm like, I, I, even though I would probably suspect that they were there, yeah. but I'm not going to lie and say, yes, I saw that guy shooting at us. I didn't it's see like shit. It's like saying all those guys that, they, yeah, yeah they, someone they, could easily say like, oh, he could, you're just like, I can't, I literally can't. I all can't I identify him because I didn't see him, you know, but they, they kind of botched the investigation <clears> of what they were doing. They should have been checking for gunpowder residue on their hands. They didn't do that. And they, they searched him for weapons and they, you know, they found some. But the one guy's story was, hey, well, it's not my gun. I'm just holding it for somebody else. Oh, they're not my bullets. I'm <laughs> What's the guy's name? I don't know. So they kind of screwed up. What organization are you running here? <laughs> yeah, they kind of screwed up that part of the investigation. But um, because I think that there would have been enough, you know, like evidence. they should have had enough circumstantial evidence. Yeah, you, you catch some guy and he's got gunpowder residue all over his hand. Right. And he just, you know, was seen fleeing this scene right here. He was probably a shooter. 
but uh, we weren't going to just say, I saw that guy because I didn't see shit. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, things were kind of calm, but um, it's still a shitload of gang members across the street at the house. And um, the police are at my house. They've got them guys routed up down the block. And then, you know, we're trying to explain what happened. And I'm walking around with this uh, officer and he's like looking at all the bullet holes in my house and my house and Ruben's house look almost the same mm -hmm. in the dark, but you can't really distinguish the color. Oh, Ruben, his house got shot to shit too. I mean, he had like massive bullet holes in his place too. Well, we're talking police ineptitude. It wouldn't surprise me if they walked into Ruben's house and thinking it was yours and it'd be like, oh, well, yeah, this um, is the right one. Yeah. So they, uh, but with the guy that was taking the report, um, and he was, he was not a, uh, you know, not, I was a, you know, no love lost for the gang members with this guy, but, um, you know, so we're kind of, we're kind of explaining what's going on. And so me and another guy are walking around with the guy and we're like telling him kind of run through the timeline and this is how it happened. This is where it went. And most of them were pissed off that we didn't call the police first. But the problem was all summer long, you know, even if there's gang related shooting on the street, you call the police, they don't do shit. You know, they, they you get called 911, you know, well, is the shooter still there? Uh, no, he ran off. You know, can you describe the shooter? Yes. And, uh, you know, so you go through this line of bullshit questioning from the dispatch at 911, and they'd never send a car. Never. In that entire summer, the only time any police ever showed up was that time those two officers parked in front of my house. Yeah. So why the fuck are we going to call the police because they're not coming in? Right. We're going to call the police. We think the gang members are going to get in a gunfight with us. Okay, well, call us when it happens. You know, it, it, so they, we were conditioned not to. Yeah. But the police, of course, as they armchair quarterback, they, well, you should have called us first. It's like, yeah, well, you guys don't exactly have a good track record for showing up. Yeah. We're, <clears throat> we're explaining what happened. And uh, we told them, you know, we like pointed out, you know, guy got shot here, guy got shot there, there, there. You know, I said, you should be looking for a small red car that's got the windshield all shot up. We don't know. So we're explaining all that to the guy about like, you know, who got shot? Well, the officer. You know, he's he standing in the front yard and he looks around. He never left the yard. He kind of looks around, looks down the street, looks down the street and say, you know, and, and all of a sudden he says, well, I don't see I don't see him now. So we're just going to call it a zero. And that was it. So, you know, the official record, the police record that nobody got shot was because they didn't investigate it. Right. You know, we identified it. We told them what happened, but they were just like, well, you know, now I don't see him now. So forget it. And, and maybe, you know, and, and looking back on it, maybe the guy was doing us a favor because maybe, you know, had they, you know, said that, yeah, gang members got shot or whatever, that they would have a whole, elevated it to a whole nother, you know, problem. Right. I mean, the way now, you know, from, right from the beginning, the police were kind of telling us, hey, you guys, you guys are legally right in what you did. You defended yourself from a heinous crime. They attacked you first and you defended yourself. You know, that's kind of self-defense. That was kind of it. And, and like you were like going in front of like their yard, like brandishing weapons, like I'll yeah, no. fuck you up. Like you weren't doing it. You're just like telling like, no, no, I didn't. I, I no, no, it. except for the you know the couple times that we went across the street, the street to tell them quit fucking with us. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we never, we never contacted them yeah. after that. But, but like, um, not like prostrating your front yard. You know what I mean? Yeah, like that kind of thing. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So anyway, but you know, word word spread fast in the gang community because all of a sudden, all these other hilltop crips who were not there not involved in the shooting they're like at the crack house and uh and and they're and of course these guys don't give a shit about the police they're, they're they're like fuck the police and uh so but the police were kind of the police were taking notice 
And, uh, you know, and I'm looking over there and then I'm kind of like, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys over there. And, uh, so I found out from one of the officers that, <laughs> that they had, they actually had SWAT around the corner, but they were keeping them on the down low because they thought they want to bring in SWAT and cause a scene to happen. They were trying to like deescalate things. But, um, the other thing that's kind of interesting that happened was at, at, at one, you know, in the same process of walking around with the officer and they're sort of sorting things out is that um, I was battalion staff at the time, and I worked for a guy named Clyde Newman, Italian XO, and he was a great guy. I mean, he, he was like outstanding XO, just just a good officer, great guy, and uh, just down to earth. Like in the Ranger Battalion Officer Mafia, they, and that's a real thing, he was pretty cool. He didn't have jack shit to prove to anybody, but in my office was just got down the hall from him. So sometimes he didn't like, he didn't like bullshitters, and I would always tell him straight. So... His desk like faced the door and mine was and so he could just yell down the hall. He'd be like, Hey Bill, come down here. And I'd go down to Major Newman's offices. And as I'd be walking by, I'm passing all these other junior officers. And they're like, uh, what's this Bill bullshit? I was like, Oh, the first name thing. Oh yeah. yeah I'm like, I don't know, sir. I don't know, sir. Why don't you go ask Major Newman? You know, like, like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He doesn't call you by first. He calls me. Anyway. Uh, so I got out and, and sit with him, you know, and we would just have these conversations about whatever. And he was, you know, he actually was, in, I didn't talk about the problems with gangs with him or anything, but I, he was interested in the work that I was doing on the house. And, uh, cause he had done some projects like that in his younger years. But, um, but he told me one day, he says, you know, he said, Sean Folk, he said, he was very, very serious. He's like, if you ever have a problem, I want to be the first to know. And I'm like, yes, sir. Absolutely. No, I thought about that. I thought about that when this was going on. So called the staff duty. I said, Hey, I, I need to get a hold of Major Newman. And they're like, All right. So of course this is the day of pagers with yeah. cell phones. So they page him up. He calls me at home and I, and he's like, What's up, sir? Folk? And I said, uh, well, sir. I said, Remember that time you told me if anything ever happened, you want to be the first to know. Or policy to yeah, well, well, you're the first to know. And I said, I said myself and uh, and a group of civilians and some rangers got into a shootout with a group of Hilltop Crips. Yeah. Now that's all I said. He's like, I'll be right over. And uh, cause you need to know where I live. And so anyway, I was expecting that, that, that he would show up by himself, but this Saturday night, uh, unknowing he was at the office club in the battalion. Buzzkill. The battalion commander was there. I got way more important things to do. I gotta go to Hilltop. Yeah. So he brought the commander with him and I, I didn't really, I didn't really care for the commander. I think he was a guy that was there just punching his ticket. I think, you know, when he recited the Ranger Creed, maybe only half meant it, you know, or it was a matter of convenience. Anyway, I, I didn't care for the battalion commander, but, but Newman was not that kind of guy. So anyway, so the two of them, and when I, was, when I saw him, I was like, oh, shit. Anyway, so they come in the door, they talk briefly to the police, and Maestas is like, oh, he's not even listening. He's not really paying attention to what the police are saying. He's not listening to the neighbors. He's just making his own assumptions know that this wild man that just decided to get in a shootout with a gang, which is not what happened, and uh, gathers all the rangers in the room and uh, orders them back, you know, because the police are going to let him go, orders them, you know, back to the barracks. He says, you go back to the you stay there. And so they all gather up their shit, except for their guns, because the police, if the police saw a gun, they would take it, but they didn't actively search. Yeah. And I, I think that may have been intentional. So, uh, you know, if a guy was carrying a gun and the police saw it, they would take it. Yeah. And uh, but they didn't look for they didn't go looking for guns, which fortunately for us. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so he orders them, gets the rangers out of there, 
And then he looks at me in front of the police and my neighbors. And he says, Sergeant Bolt, you said, I can't order you to leave your house, but I strongly suggest you do. I got like 10 neighbors sitting in my freaking living room. And I said, sir, I said, if I leave this house, they will come back here tonight and burn this thing to the ground. And he looks at me with a straight face and he says, well, you get fire insurance, don't you? And I just like blew oh, up. Oh my God. Are you fucking kidding me? You know what? I, you know, hey, man, how about the fence of the nation begins at home? How about, you know, the right to self-defense? How about, you know, I was like, fuck that. And I just started, I just started <laughs> spouting off and I'm like fucking yelling at the battalion commander. Like, are you fucking kidding me? And uh, Fort Major Newman like, grabs me by the army, drags me into this side bedroom and into the bathroom where, you know, I'm away from him. And he says, Sergeant Folk, you better shut the fuck up. I'm like, I'm like, sure. I'm like, it just absolutely, I could not believe, you know, like, like an absolute 180 from what I would actually believe or expect from yeah. a freaking Ranger Battalion commander to say. And he said, well, you're right. But shut the fuck up. You know what? And uh, that he just, let it go. Let it go. Just, just you're going to, you're going to stay here and do what you got to do. We're going to leave. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. It's always that good, um, that good dynamic. You have that, that NCO and that officer who maybe they're not in charge of each other, but they're, they're friends or like they're good, like work friends or whatever, but yeah. it's like the Tweedledee Tweedledon kind of situation. Oh yeah. He, 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 I just, yeah. But I, I could not believe that the, uh, I was embarrassed because he's like saying this. To, first of all, it's like, what a chicken shit thing to do. You got all these civilians that all these Rangers just defended from this, in this freaking gun battle. And he fucking sends them away, you know, and just leaves the police. Like, what kind of chicken shit move is that? Yeah. But I think he was the kind of guy, he was, I think he was looking out for his own ass. And that's really all that fucking mattered. It was like, you know, his ass, his career. And, uh, but anyway, they all left. And then it left me with the neighbors and the police. And now it's getting to be like two o'clock in the morning. And uh, Dan Vopel, who was the writer, had left and then came back. And uh, was just, you know, Kenny says, hey, man, he just had to get some additional details or whatever. And because Dan was not there during the actual shooting, he had left before it started. And he was like kicking himself in the ass. I should have been here. Should have been here. But um, anyway, he had to, he got some additional information. He's like, I got to go. He says, because I got like a three o'clock deadline. Uh, and then the last thing he tells me as he's leaving the house, he says, hey, Bill, don't be surprised when the TV stations call you tomorrow. And I'm like, why? You know, what we've had, why, what do they like care? We've had shooting on this street. We had gang related shooting on this street all summer long. And all of a sudden somebody's going to take notice. And so I was really quite surprised. I, I thought, I, I don't think so. And there's probably like a hundred gang members across the street and the police are like, fuck, we don't know what we're going to do. And they're trying to do anything. They, they just don't want to escalate the situation and cause like, you know, something that, yeah. like, you know, powder keg to erupt. But, uh, so they decided that, um, they were going to keep one patrol car circling this like two block area continuously to make sure that like nothing happened. Yeah. And then pretty much after that, you know, they all split. And as the, the guy that took the report, as he's leaving, now I didn't admit that we still had a shitload of guns there. I let him think that they just took all our guns. But as he's leaving, I'm like, hey, you guys took all our guns. What are we supposed to do? He says, if I were you, he said, I'd call some more of your friends and I'd get more guns. And I was like, this is from police. Call more friends, get more guns. I was like, okay, got it. Really? Can we have like a loner kind of yeah, yeah, really. Can I like so, keep half and yeah, then we won't yeah. touch them? So then they- The honor system. The honor system. Yeah. So then now, so police are gone. The Rangers are gone. The XO commander are all gone. So now it's like me and 15 of my neighbors are there. And, and Shirley. I don't know Shirley had to say after all this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, what do, you, what do you guys want to do? They're like, well, we ain't going home. 
because they were worried about their own. There was no, their houses were all empty, but they were worried if they did go home they under attack or whatever, you know? So like, we're staying here. And I said, all right, good. Well, let me show you where the guns are all hidden. Sleepover. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, sleepover. Yeah. So then, so, so, so then, you know, just we rearmed and then just stayed. We had eyes on target outside, but we mostly kept the civilians inside the house and kept an eye on things. And I said, hey, you guys, you know, get some rest if you can. Sleep wherever you can. I don't care. I said, but keep that gun by your side. Yeah. I don't think I got to sleep at all, but sure as shit. This is, of course, in the days of like phone books and landline phones. And I was a listed number. And then about seven o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden my phone starts ringing and it's like channel four, channel five, channel seven. I don't remember exactly which, but it was three news stations that called me up and they're like, Hey, we want to send a crew down there to, to interview you and your neighbors. And I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah. And I'm thinking not because we want the publicity. It seemed like, again, the only thing that made a difference was getting the information out there mm -hmm. and uh, letting people, this is how fucked up things are. Yeah. So the three crews show up. And they've got their big tripods with their cameras and they're in different spots in the streets. Yeah. So I'm sure. So there was like one over here, one over here, one over here. So this, and I remember it's because this reporter who's currently still on the news, I think she's an anchor, but at the time she was a news reporter, mm -hmm. Joyce Taylor. I'll have to look for her on the news in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. It's maybe channel seven, but uh, anyway, Joyce Taylor is right here and there's a crew here, crew here. And they're spreading out and the neighbor were kind of like standing. And remember my yard sloped down to the street. So there's some of the neighbors are standing around and there's some in the street. I didn't want to be this. I just like talk to these guys, mm -hmm. you know, what these are people, they live here just as well as I do, you know, and I was trying to get out there, let these people do some time. But anyway, this is nine o'clock in the morning, door opens up on a crack house. And then all of a sudden, all these gang members start pouring out of the house mm -hmm. and Joyce Taylor sees it. I'm on the front, in my front yard, like right here. Yeah. I'm trying to stay back, but I look at her, I look at them and I look at her she had one of those motorola brick phones and, and i could see clearly she's got this look on her face and she takes that phone and you can see what, what she's doing she's doing like eh, eh, eh. she's calling 911, like right there and so the neighbors come the game come down and mm -hmm. they got there marco is there and he's got his girlfriend right renee, renee. what's his girlfriend's name and a young girl you know and uh, so they come down there and then she starts spouting off. They shot at us first, and they had Uzis and AK-47s. Bitch, we had a video camera. Yeah, 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 and gunshots all around the house. Two houses that are completely shot yeah. up, but we started it. Anyway, they're telling all this shit to the news crews and all that. And then all of a sudden, man, Renee and Shirley get into a freaking fight. Like the two women. When women fight, they are brutal. I mean, it's like they scuffle. And then some of the neighbors get in. And I was like, I'll never forget. It was this, this kind of young gang member. He gets, I'm so I'm standing, I'm watching, and I'm like, you know, they, everybody was, they were doing fine. They were holding their own, you know. But then all of a sudden, it was so funny because this kind of short guy, a little bit stocky, yeah. he gets in front of me, and I'm standing in the yard, and I'm just looking at him. And then all of a sudden, he does this like, like fucking, like, he, like he's some kind of kung fu master. Yeah. He like, gets in front of me, like, <laughs> and I look at him, and I'm like, it's not time to fight. I'm like, no. okay, come on. You know, and then he just, he just walked away. But the fight only, it only lasted like really a, a few minutes. You know, once the fight between Shirley and Renee broke up, because Renee was getting her ass handed to her. Poor once Shirley. that broke up, then they all kind of broke. And Poor uh, Shirley. Shirley is my favorite. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, and then they just, it just sort of separated. Honestly, I was I like, if, if I felt like 
I needed to get involved, I would, but, but Shirley wasn't you know, going. I was like, you know what? Go are, back, let her. I'm gonna let these guys hold their own until something, until I got to step in. But it only lasted a few minutes. But the interesting thing was, it took 27 minutes for a police car to show up. So from the time that Joyce Taylor called 911, 27 minutes, finally a car shows up. So in that 27 minutes, you know, of course the news crews are all like freaking out, like, oh, what the fuck? Fortunately, thank God, nobody brought a gun out Sunday morning. Like we we left all that, because we were talking to the news crews, we left all the guns inside. The gang didn't bring out any guns. So that fortunately it ended up not being any shooting that, you know, was which very, very fortunate. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, but there was still a lot of tension and uh, the news crews just ate them up, ate up TPD. It's like, how can you have a freaking gun battle with 300 rounds fired, you know, on Saturday night, which technically Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And then, and it takes you 27 minutes to respond to a 911 call the next morning. And uh, so, yeah, the police department, unfortunately, they got their ass handed to them. And, uh, I think that was one of the things that they made them realize it's like, Hey, we gotta, we got, we gotta fix this. And a couple of things they were like, uh, we can't have, we can't have our civilians getting into gun battles with gang members. That's a police job. And, uh, and they're not but, trained like you guys were like, even, even like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's different. Yeah. 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 But there were some good things that happened. Uh, interesting things that happened in the aftermath. You know, I was quite surprised at the way the army handled it. I mean, I thought I'm legally right in what I did. And, uh, but you know, nobody in the army bothered to investigate the situation. All they knew is that I was the leader and I got these, this group of Rangers to get into a shootout with these gang members. That's all they knew. They didn't bother investigating what led up to this, what was going on with the police, what's going on with the neighbors, the circumstances, nothing. It's like, they just didn't give a shit. You know, they were focused on, you know, this one thing. And I ended up getting called into up to I-Corps headquarters. So General Waller had assumed command of I-Corps. And I get this message, you got to report to the general. I'm like, why the fuck does general want to see me? You know, so I was like, all right, fine. So I, I go up to that. I know where the headquarters. I walk in and the lobby is kind of semi-empty. There's no, there was nobody there that I could see. And they got a TV on. And so I'm standing there waiting. And I, I look at the TV and all of a sudden the news has got this clip of General Waller. And he's talking about something because the I-Corps just assumed command or whatever. I don't know if, but for some reason, I look at the TV and I said out loud, so that's what he looks like. Thinking, I got to go meet this guy, right? And then all of a sudden, there was a voice behind me that said, yeah, that's what he said about you. And it turned out the guy was a Vietnam vet. He was a DOD civilian. He worked at the public affairs. And he was the guy that was there to meet me and get me to where I needed to be. And uh, But what a great guy. You know what? He was like completely supportive. He was the only al only ally I had at I Corps. You know, he would feed me intel on the kind of shit that was coming down. And hey, man, you got to watch out. They get your eat rounds coming your way. And uh, so he wouldn't let me know. But anyway, so I go upstairs, and and it, you know what you would expect from a core headquarters up, <clears throat> big room, massive freaking table. I walk in the door. Darrell Waller sit at the far end of this big giant conference table. On one side of the table is the whole battalion staff. So the battalion commander, the XO, the sergeant major, my company commander, the first sergeant, the S3, you know, the SY. I had, I had all the SY. I had them all there. And on the other side of the table is the I-Corps staff. 
So the chief of staff and everybody else and his thing and his and the JAG. To be fair, this is probably the most interesting meeting that those officers had ever been a part of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I look and I'm like, all this for me? Yeah. And I was quite surprised. This for me? And, yeah, and so anyway, so they I record, sit down, and then nobody asked me a single fucking question. Yeah. Nobody on either of these on either side of the table asked me a question about anything like certain folk how the fuck did this happen you think you might want to know but they never asked and all they did was sit there and talk about how they could screw me you know it's like uh well we think that's our we say folk did this or we should do this or we should do that we could fuck them this way we could do that you know and and all the while the jag is like you can't do it you can't do that so these i'm like i'm just watching these if it's like you know, a verbal abuse thing pile like ping, 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 just talking mm-hmm. shit about me and i'm like hey why don't, you ask, why don't you ask me what the fuck happened? But they didn't care. You know, every time the Jack says, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. You know, I think they finally got frustrated and they were like, fuck it. And, and uh, you know, then the, the uh, you know, somebody says, all right, start folks, you can go. Well, I'm like, okay, well, that was a whole lot of nothing. And uh, so I leave and I'm walking down the hallway and uh, I, this, this, this uh, colonel follows, he had followed me out there and he's chasing me down the hallway and, you know, he's in his dress green uniform and uh, based on, you know, his, you know, I'm thinking this guy's probably a Vietnam vet and uh, he's old enough for sure. Yeah. And uh, so he looks at me like, we're just real pissed off. And he said, he started, I'm going to tell you something. I was like, what's that, sir? He said, I want you to know you can forget about ever getting promoted. And I'm like, why is that, sir? And he's like, well, because you become too well known for the wrong reasons. And I'm like, if these are the wrong reasons, man, I'm in the wrong job. And, uh, and I just, and I thought to myself, how the fuck in this 06 here at Fort Lewis have anything to do with fucking my career when it's all managed out of, you know, department of the army. Yeah. But, uh, so I, I didn't really take, I didn't really take it that seriously. So something else that happened after the i thing, and I think it's significant and partly maybe why, um, because I did not decide to, uh, go along to get along within a week or so. The regimental headquarters, which is down at Fort Benning, sent a JAG attorney to my house. They sent some battalions to meet with me. And so this major comes in, you know, JAG lawyer from regiment. And so his offer was, and the government, they did it with, you know, I knew people at DEA that had this done. The government will buy your house at fair market value and they relocate you. So he comes up there to make this proposal. And uh, so meets with me and he's like, hey, you know, we want to buy your, we want to buy your house at fair market value. We're going to relocate you to Fort Benning. We're going to do this and this. We're going to get you out of here. You know, and I said, sir, we need, we need to go to my house. You know, he's like, why? And I said, I said, I'll explain when we get there. Sure. We need to go to my house. I don't want to go to your house. I'm like, we need to go to my house. So I take this JAG attorney, get him in the car, drive to my house and we park. Then you go out in the front yard, you know, and he's kind of like, he's the, the guy is like nervous as shit. And uh, so we're walking around and I tell him how things went down. And uh, then I asked, said, so I'm a young army ranger and you want me to leave and you're going to you know, buy my house and relocate me to a different state. And I said, what are you going to do for Shirley next door? What are you going to do for Reuben and Carol? You know, what, yeah. What are you going to, what are you going to do for Irene? What are you going to do for the Christie's? What are you going to do? I was like, you know what? I said, I said, I'm not here alone. You know what I said? I said, all these, all these neighbors, you know, that were here with me, I'm like, what, what the fuck's that going to look like? 
you know, I'm a young army ranger and I'm just going to turn around and bail out of my neighborhood after this shit goes down. And I said, what? And nobody's going to do anything for these other people. I said, no. I said, if it's a choice I have to make, I'm not doing it. I'm not going. And uh, he was like, take me back to Fort Lewis. <laughs> he couldn't wait to get out. I just, I don't understand that mentality. I mean, especially, you know, coming from a military person, it's like, hey, you know what? What do you, what do you, what you don't think about these other people? And then, you know, my battalion commander telling me, well, you got fire insurance, don't you? I'm like, what the fuck are you people about? You know, so they, it was just an eye-opening, like shocking, some of the stuff that have a shocking experience. But anyway, I stayed. I stayed. Well, yes. That's awesome. But it's kind of funny because in two thoughts that they do, you know, whether it be the army or, or other organizations, you know, military organizations, government organizations, when you piss off the wrong people and they decide you're fucked, you're fucked. They might not be able to do anything to you officially, but unofficially, they can fuck you sideways. And that kind of, that's kind of what happened for me over the next couple of years. Fortunately, things got, the battalion was in this, you know, pre, uh, we were still preparing, you know, for Panama. Mm -hmm. And I had a part of that. I had a job to do. And so they let me do my job. And we had gone to Eglin and doing a rehearsal mission. And we all thought we were going from there. Mm -hmm. But they sent us back to Fort Lewis. And then we were probably on the ground 16 hours. Then they call up, okay, is your Bravo notification? And you go back, we go back, go back to bedding, do the whole thing. And then we're off yeah. to Panama. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were playing that song as we were, they were forming up. No. Yeah. Somebody had moved oh these speakers outside and we're, we're inside the compound and somebody's blasting that Panama song as we're getting ready to go back to Benning. And by this time I'm thinking, all right, this is all behind me. You know what? I'm here in Panama. I made this combat jump. We did all this shit. We did these missions. I had responsibility. I was in charge of the PSYOPs and civil affairs units. We did all these great missions. Even Clyde, we were doing, uh, we were doing bug hunts with Delta to go find Noriega. Bug hunt for Noriega. Oh. So, it, so, and so, you know, so Clyde would be like, hey, come on, let's go. So we're in the same group. Like, come on, come on, Fairfoot, let's go, let's go. So he's taking me with them. We're going out doing this shit. And I'm, so I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm good. You know, this is all behind me and all that shit. But after a few months, we finally get back to, uh, to Fort Lewis and, uh, man, then the shit just started all over again. Once we got back to Garrison, then it was like, this is happening and that's happening and you're going to do this. And it was just one fucking screw job after it, another. I was in Korea. I just, I mean, I just a pure observational standpoint. I'm like, what the fuck is going on back there? Yeah. yeah. It was just like up every, every single thing, like in Oh, I can't remember what the other thing you yeah, story was. Yeah, when you're out yeah. of the country, it's a different thing. You come yeah. back to the Jesus fucking yeah. Christ. But in another interesting thing happened. So around the same time frame as meeting with uh, General Waller and them try trying to figure out how they can fuck me. Yeah. Some genius decided that they needed to make my house and the hilltop. This was like days after the shootout. You know, like two or three days. They decided they're going to make my house and the hilltop of Tacoma off limits to all military personnel. I wonder how long they kept it on there. Oh, I, I don't know. I like all, <laughs> and they, it was on the damn news. You know, like I can, I was sitting there watching King Five, and there's like, yeah, the anchor is like, yes. And the army had said, it was a, the spokesperson for the army. You know, they filmed the freaking guy, and he's like, yes, soccer folks houses and the hilltop. Like, we've declared it off limits. So I'm thinking, wow, thanks, fuckers. Just hang me out to dry. That is and, and, where you and, and, So I'm thinking, well, now 
anybody that wants to retaliate has got to know that, hey, man, I'm out here by myself. <laughs> there ain't no military backup. But again, because of lack of technology, phone books and landline phones, you know, like that night, my phone started ringing because I'm thinking, this is fucked up. And I know I can't have my neighbors back here every night. Yeah. So I started getting a ton of phone calls from people that are like, people I didn't even know, just looked me up in the phone book and then said, hey, man, we believe what you did. Uh, what do you need? You need money, you need guns, you need ammunition. What do you need? It's and so I'm like, weird to hear of like Washingtonians saying I'm that. Like, I'm like, uh, what I really need, I said, I need, I need people to help secure this neighborhood. I said, because the police ain't got to be here. And ammo. Yeah, well, they brought their own, you know, so I, I came up and we had volunteers, people that I didn't even know, different backgrounds, you know, they may have been retired or reservist or whatever they were, they were civilians. They called me up and they said, hey, I want to help. And I, so I just started this roster and I had people like seven a night, every night they show up like about six or seven o'clock. We kind of go through this uh, briefing about, you know, identifying the friendlies, the target, the threats, you know, where the safe places were. And, uh, and these volunteers, they, they were there ever visible. So that when these guys were there, they, we weren't hiding. I mean, these guys, they had guys like out front, like, like out bang. front with guns, you know, so that they knew that there were people there and, uh, and all just all civilian volunteers that came of their own accord and just said, Hey, we're here to help. Yeah. And I had a lot of volunteers, but it's just tough to organize and it gets kind of exhausting. And then. Every night you're sleeping, like fully dressed and armed. And it's just like, you're waiting for something to happen. And, um, you know, so I told you about the Molotov cocktail that came in and then just they did, the bottle didn't break and it just burned a hole in the grass. Another funny thing that happened in the middle of the night, one night, somebody came up into my front yard and pounded a crush into the front yard to set it on fire. What? Yeah. I thought you were going to go totally different direction. I thought somebody like took a shit on your front No, porch. no, no. I, I, and, uh, I was just like, well, that's shockingly, that didn't happen. That's a little confusing. You know, I, like, why is that be burning across in my front? Yeah, like, whatever. But, um, you know, so a lot of, I mean, they, you know, there was a lot of drive-by stuff. And then they had, um, there were two two police officers that were supposed to be like the community liaison guys. And these guys were supposedly had contact with the gang members and they'd get, they'd get so word on the street is this is going to happen and be careful and this and that. And then, Informant. you know, then they got grenades. And so then they had to like barricade my windows and just all kinds of shit. But this, so they went on for a couple of weeks and then, you know, but it started, it just got exhausted. I was like, fuck it. I got, I got, I got to stop that. And then, so I decided, you know, it was like a, like a Friday night. I think we had the last one on a Thursday night. I didn't organize anything for Friday night. And I was just like, no, I, that's it. I'm going mm -hmm. home. I'm going to take my chances. And, um, the, uh, our, our battalion Sergeant major was a guy named Duke. <clears throat> I, he was a great guy, a former Delta guy. I, I, I got along with him really well. And I think Duke was one of those kind of guys that you know, in his own mind, he was like, fuck a, you know, right on good job. But he couldn't say that, mm -hmm. you know, because of the freaking, you know, you can't, you can't go Politics. against the freaking, uh, you know, the narrative, you can't speak out against the narrative. Like, Hey, sir, well, great job. But there were secretly, there were a lot of people that did say, hey, you know, like I remember my company XO. He was like, you know, give me a thumbs up. Good job. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so, you, you know, I, I think Duke could tell that I was just fucking exhausted, a little tired, frustrated. And, you know, and so he, he, call, he calls me and he's like, Sharp Folk, how you doing? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. I was saying to your house. I said, it's, you know, it's, it's 
little shaky, yeah. you know. And I mean, uh, anyone would be any, and he said, any reasonable person would be after something like that. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. And so he's like, "Well, what do you need?" I said, "Honestly, honestly, short man, I just need a fucking break. I just need to go. I need to get away from this shit. I need to get away from my house. I just need to go someplace and like relax, you know, for for just a few hours, just to get away from this shit." And uh, and because it was off limits, though, there were some exceptions. Battalion, battalion staff, like battalion commander, the XO, short battalion staff, my company commander, first sergeant, sergeant major. Yeah. So he was on the list of, you know, he was at, you could go there. So, so sergeant major is like, hey, come out to your house. And uh, he says, I'll keep an eye on it for you while you're, you know, just go, go get away, do something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, sergeant, really? And he's like, hell yeah. So he shows up well-armed. <laughs> And uh, yeah. by himself, you know, uh -huh. he's got, he got, he, the guy's got skills, yeah. you know? And so I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm leaving my hands, I'm leaving my house in good hands here. You know, and again, I kind of gave him the layout of, you know, and it was the first time he had been at my house, yeah. you know, first time he had seen like what was going on. Yeah. And uh, he's like, I got this. He says, go. And fortunately for me, you know, because of the alley around the reason I bought the house was because of the alleyway access, I could leave out the back and no one could see me from the front. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, being from a small town in Rhode Island where, you know, 10 miles is far, um, I thought I got, I got to find a place to go. And so I decided that, you know, living in Tacoma, that I'm going to go all the way to University Place to Barbecue Pete's, which is like, you know. Is it still there? 10 mile drive. No, they closed it. No. <laughs> but I used to like it. Anyway, I'm going to Barbecue Pete's. I'm going to go to UP where nobody's going to know me. And uh, so... I, and I'd been, been in that bar before, and, and uh, so I kind of like walk in, I check it out, it looks pretty quiet, and uh, I get a seat at the far end of the bar, so I'm facing the door, and I order up a beer, and then like, you know, just as I order the damn beer, there's this voice behind me that said, this guy's money is no good here. And I'm like, oh, man. And so I, I slowly turn around, and this <laughs> guy there, he was, it turned out he was a Tacoma police officer. Yeah. And he was sitting there with 12 of them, six TPDs, six uh, Pierce County sheriffs. And they used to gather, you know, like on Friday nights or whatever, they get there and have some beers and talk shop or whatever. And they said, hey, me and my friends, and they were sitting in the corner, mm -hmm. say, me and my friends wanted you to come sit with us. And, and uh, every single one of these guys was like, hey, man, thanks, shaking my hand. Thank you. You did the right thing. It's about time somebody stood up to these motherfuckers. He said, our job, basically, they said, our job has been shit. You know, because of, you know, for a year because of this bullshit. And he yeah. said, we really appreciate somebody finally freaking standing up and doing something. So yeah. I got to sit down with these guys and we, you know, just talked a little bit. They had me questions about me. We talked about the you know, how screwed up stuff can be. But it was a really good experience. You know, and I really, it was nice to connect to those guys and find out that not everybody thought it was a bad idea. You know, so. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of validation goes a long way. <laughs> yeah, 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 but, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man, oh, you have you had questions. You guys had questions. We do right? have a lot of questions. So I'm going to let him pop back on. I think his his thing happened. I thought. Are yeah. We ready to do some rapid fire questions. Okay, let, let me just let me just oh. read through this real quick. Okay, okay. hold on. It's a friend. Let me. Um, I'm going to double check that we uh, don't have any new ones. Okay. None there. Do you want me to read them, Amanda? Uh, yes. I've got All right. a couple. Okay. But we'll wait till. 
my world's smallest bladder, so I hope you like that again. Yeah, Mac. Don't be alone. And if there's any, if there's any in here you don't want to read, we don't have to read them. But I don't think they're that bad. Oh yeah, no, it's fine. Hi Daisy. Daisy, oh, there Daisy. This one. Daisy, up. Come on, up. No, you can't. This one. Okay, now we're good. All right, all right. We got the questions ready. All right. And with some questions. All right. Now, is Tacoma worse now than it was back then when the, this event occurred? I guess uh, focusing I on Crips and Bloods. I mean, I would say that it is um, in, in a different way, but it's approaching the same uh, level of um, violence. Viol violence that we had back then. The difference between, you know, in the late 80s was organized gangs, Crips and Bloods. Um, today in Tacoma, there there are still gangs, you know, mostly like uh, related to Mexican cartels and and drug trafficking. Yeah. And um, you know, I didn't tell this, and I can I can tell this now because I'm retired. Um, so I ended up because I was getting fucked with so bad, I ended up getting out of the army in '92 by the prompting of a buddy who was also kind of looking for a job. He kind of pointed me in a direction that I had never even thought about, and uh, he was like, "Hey, you should you should go work for the DEA." And I'm like, as in the Drug Enforcement Administration. And I'm like, really? He said, oh, yeah, they look for, they're looking for guys like you and all this. And so I looked into it, um, ended up filling out an application, got called in for an interview. Part of what they uh, were looking for in the job description was they wanted someone that had experience in covert operations. And um, so anyway, end up, uh, end up applying, interviewed, and then um, five people on this panel. And they're asking me questions. I thought the interview was going pretty well. And then the uh, white guy looks at me and he said, so uh, anything you want to tell us about? And, and I was like, well, yes, I do. Because, you know, we'll hear this story and I'd like you to hear it from me. So I said, uh, you know, I told him briefly about like, you know, how, how I ended up getting into this shootout in Tacoma. And the guy looks at me and says, yeah, I thought you looked familiar. And I was like, oh, oh man. And, and of course, you know, the DEA had an office in Tacoma. They knew everything that was going on. You know, during that time frame, um, I don't know what they were working on, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe at that level, maybe they weren't doing like, you know, street level stuff. But anyway, you know, he looked at me, he said, yeah, I thought you looked familiar. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, I really expected that to be a uh, kind of a no-go, but the guy called me up three days later and he said, hey, we want to bring you on board and uh, I got to have you in my group and this is what I want you to do. And so I ended up hiring on and I did uh, 28 years with the yeah. DEA before I retired. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of shit, man. yeah. So, uh, it, I loved it. I loved it, you know, and I, I, I you know, it's like, you know, I really felt like I, I was, I'd been fucked by the army or not really fucked by people in the army because I loved the army. Yeah. I mean, I loved it from the day that I went in there. I loved everything I did about it. Even, you know, they got a, they got an expression, you know, embrace the suck. And uh, even at the most shittiest times, you know, maybe it's my warped sense of humor, but I could always find a way to, you know, find some humor in the worst situations. But, um, but I loved it. And uh, so when I was getting out, you know, in uh, April of 92, I was pissed. But I knew in my head and in my heart, it's like, hey, man, you know what? I've come all this way on my own. 
and I can do whatever I want from here on out. You know, I was not worried about, you know, well, what's going to, what's, what's, what's going to happen. And, you know, so, um, and I was pretty ticked off, but fortunately in the process of getting out, I know I got off the subject of the question, but in the process of getting out, the last guy I had to see was the in-service reserve brooder who had my 201 file in front of him, which is like a, you know, just a paper file of all your shit. And he's looking at it. He said, Sergeant Polk, he said, uh, I know your story. He said, you've been railroaded. You've been fucked. And, uh, but I, and I got some advice. If you don't want to hear it, but I got advice. He said, you know, you made all these sacrifices for the army. You've had so many difficult assignments. You've done all these things. He said, it's time you do something for yourself. He said, you don't throw away these years. He said, finish out your time in the guard. Do your one weekend a month, do your two weeks in the summer, give them the bare minimum, but put in the time so you can get your retirement. And I was like, double pension, baby. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, well, but it, this, this was happening before I had hired out with DJ. Oh, shit. So anyway, so I was like, okay, okay, okay. I, I think that's yeah, probably a good idea. So I did. I took his advice. I went in and I was able to finish out my, my time and I did my, I earned my retirement. But uh, when I hired out with DEA, right from the get-go, coming, and it wasn't that many years after leaving the battalion, when you spend that kind of time in the battalion with that pace of activity, the commitment, you know, the, the, it becomes a part of you. The Ranger Creed is like your moral compass that guides your life. And uh, so when I hired out with DEA, I was still like the same guy with the, the same mindset, the same determination, and, but now I just got a different job. And I was happy to have a, a job with a real-world mission. So every day it's like, we're out there, we're actually doing something. So I never took my job for granted. I always felt like I worked very hard and would try to go above and beyond and make contributions to the DEA that they, things that had never been done before. And fortunately it worked out for me. I had that opportunity. I got to do some things that had never been done and changed the scope of law enforcement, not only at DEA, but pretty much across the country when it came to electronic surveillance, which kind of became my niche. But, and I did all field oh, work. Shit. So you guys have to make me out there. So <laughs> anyway, so what's happening in Tacoma today and, and like happening in, and unfortunately a lot of, um, you know, liberal cities and states is, you know, this idea of defunding the police, it's the same shit. You know, in 1989, the Tacoma police department was a hundred officers short in trying to deal in, in deal 1300 crack houses, you know, so the department is understaffed. They don't get any support. They didn't have any support from the command and the political side of it. It was a state of denial. You know, they're like, oh, we don't have a gang problem. We don't have this problem. We don't have, well, the same shit is going on right now. And uh, the only difference is that instead of organized gangs like the Crips and the Bloods, you've got Mexican cartels, which tend to operate much lower under the radar. I can tell you before leaving the job and talking to friends within the police departments that, you know, the homicide rate in certain cities in this area has gone up astronomically. <clears throat> Homicide rate is a lot of, you know, Mexican gang-related mm -hmm. violence. The you, uh, so the shit is still going on. And uh, I think with the level of drug abuse on our streets and also mental illness, which is allowed to go unchecked, that at some point in time, somebody is going to have enough and say, fuck this. And, um, and it could happen again, maybe not to the scale that, you know, you've got 50 Rangers getting into a gun battle, but somebody's going to have enough and somebody is going to blow somebody's shit away because it's like, I'm not taking it anymore. So I think right. that for lack of a better term, they got to unfuck this 
you know what? They better start supporting the police. They better let the police do their damn job. They better take crime and homelessness and drug abuse seriously um, because people are going to get tired of being a victim. And at some point in time, victims are going to be like, I'm not going to be a victim anymore. And, uh, you know, I highly, I, I, I tell my friends, man, don't, if you're going, if you are someplace where there's, there's a lot of crime, there's a lot of drug abuse, you better be going armed. And uh, it's one of those kind of things. I think that sometimes in the mindset, when you're prepared, you never need it, you know, but the one time that you need a gun is not when it's sitting at home, it better be on your body. So I encourage yep. people, if you're going to, if you're going to a shitty place, you better be prepared. You know, hope that you don't need it, but be prepared because you got to take care of yourself. The police are not allowed to do their jobs the way they should. Politicians are full of shit. And, um, you know, it's, it's got to, yeah, you've got to be up to, it's up to the individual, you know, be prepared and know your right. So, so I think we're, we're heading down that same path. Okay. Now, do you still live in that house? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and although it looks quite different, it's sort of like my personal Winchester mansion because I bought the house. I initially redid the original structure. And then while still in the battalion, actually after Panama, I came back and I built a small addition, two-story addition on the back of the house. And then I've added on a lot. So the house is yeah. probably twice as big as it was when I first bought it. And then I, I put in a cardboard. I have a concrete driveway. I've got a three-car garage. And then... In the front, I built a retaining wall that's like five feet high. So the yard no longer slopes down to the uh, alleyway. And, uh, but yeah, still, still in the same house. And the funny thing is, and I left one bullet hole. So <laughs> there's one bullet hole on the front of the house that I decided it's in a protected area. It's undercover. So that just kind of as a marker of like, Hey, this is what happened. But the funny thing, I didn't finally, my house got shot to shit. I repaired it myself. My next door neighbor, Ruben. No, I think he filed a claim and got vinyl siding. <laughs> so his house got all redone. He got new windows. He got new vinyl siding. I fixed it's it up. It's easier when other people do it for you. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, I just, I, I fixed it myself. I, I couldn't figure out how am I going to make that claim? Call my insurance company. Well, my. You're not going to believe this. You're like, what? Yeah. So I, I'm, I need to file a claim because my house is full of bullet holes and then my windows got shot out. So. It. <laughs> what was it? It, it was our, our cryptids episode. And there was like that guy who filed an insurance claim because like he swerved out of the road to avoid, to avoid a ghost. Oh. And he had it on camera. And so it was like, well, how the fuck did you file that claim? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I decided I'm just going to fix this myself. Yeah. I'm not going to get my insurance company involved. Yeah. Oh man. They'd be like, oh god, it'd be like their weather trainees like their first day. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna, you know, well, they, well, they'll be like, uh, well, let me see. We need to make an appointment to send an adjuster to your house. Oh, second thought, no. We're not sending an adjuster to your house. That question. Yes, ma'am. Do 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 do. Yeah, fire. just do yours. Okay. Notes and stuff. So, first question is: Have you ever seen men who stare at goats? What? The men who stare at goats. The men who stare at goats. Oh, oh my gosh. You know, that sounds very familiar, but I don't remember. It was like the 70s, the army special operations, and they were hiring whoever, like they were pouring money into, CIA was pouring money into telekinesis because they figured that 
Russia was doing that. And it was just this bizarre thing. <laughs> and I was like, I think go at some course, like some refresher or whatever, but whatever. So I'm just like, around that time we were doing this episode, I was like, oh, honey, you have to go try to find a dope lab. Go find the dope lab and give me pictures. And yeah. he didn't do it. Okay, I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Okay. So the next one, what was your favorite deployment? Panama. <laughs> Well, yeah, in my entire military career, I would say the invasion of Panama, number one, because when you're, when you spend all those years training and, and preparing, and you finally get to put your skills to the test, you know, it was very interesting. We had like the 16th E-130s and we're flying in, it's supposed to be at 500 feet. And there was supposed to be some preparation of of the target that didn't go well, in my opinion. And there was a couple of things that like. Tactically, some mistakes I have as I'm sitting in this briefing, I'm thinking, that's pretty fucking stupid. This shit that's going on. But, you know, like putting our, our M16s in a 1950 weapons case, like, you know, what, hey, we're jumping into combat. You want me to put my rifle in this fucking bag? I was like, whatever. And then as you're flying and, you know, the aircraft are taking rounds and, you know, you know that you're going to jump out into in a freaking live fire. They're like shooting at you as you're coming down. And the thing that just went into my head, it's like, fuck it. You could die like right here. And in my own mind, I was like, well, fuck it. You know, I just decided like, whatever happens, happens. Fuck it, we ball, right? Yeah. It's like, you know what? Hey, if I, if I turn in, if I get shot on the way down or whatever, if I, if it all goes well, great. But you know what? Once I like made the decision and just said, fuck it, you just go, whatever's going to happen, happens. And so it was kind of interesting. I was going to ask you, we were talking about paranormal stuff. Yeah. You know, so I don't know if you've ever had other people that have explained this, but, you know, there are certain times in my life as a kid growing up, I got run over a car when I was six, I had multiple accidents. You know, my mother was like, you got a guardian angel because you should already be dead. And I had a couple of things that happened, you know, when I, when I was in 10th group where this voice in my head said, do this or don't do that or go this way or whatever it was. And I smart enough to listen to that and I like did it. And then I saw the outcome. Had I done the other thing, I was like, fuck, I'd be dead. So anyway, on the jump out, you know, of course, you got this freaking hundred pound rucksack, you know, the planes is all, I got a shitty accent. I'm twisting. I'm trying to untangle. I'm drifting. It's a T10. I'm drifting backwards. And I have my rucksack is hanging in front of my legs and I have the lowering line in hand. And I'm like, I know I can see the ground. I know I need to lower it. And, but there's this voice in my head that's like, wait, wait wait. And I'm like, no, I gotta lower this rucksack. Fortunately, I waited. And as I'm looking down at the ground, I drifted over a set of high tension power lines. And I was like, holy shit. And as soon as I passed out those lines, I released it and released the rucksack and bam, within a second, I was on the ground. And, uh, but the funny thing was I landed in this like great big, sort of like a briar patch. So my landing was like, poof, <laughs> like laying on a pillow until I started getting stabbed by all the stickers. And, but the other good thing for me was that I landed in a spot I had already had concealment. So for me, I always use this thing of like, you know, okay. Yeah. All right. I, I got everything. Uh, yeah. My body's intact. And then I get my shit. So I was able to take a few moments to get my M16 out, you know, get me out of my harness, secure my shit, and then decide, you know, you move into the, you move in the direction of the battle, you know, and I knew, I knew I, where my assembly area was and I was like, all right, I got to go. So once I had it figured out, then I was like, I got my ass out of that freaking fire patch and then started moving in the direction I needed to go. 
And then the only stop along the way was we had dropped these gun jeeps that were on pallets. Yeah. And I came across one of the gun jeeps and there's nobody there. So I'm like, yeah. So I'm like, well, fuck, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to stop for a minute and secure it and pull some security on this Jeep until somebody shows up that's supposed to be part of that crew. <laughs> and then within a couple of minutes that, you know, some, some guys showed up, they were, you know, before the gun drape. And then I just mm -hmm. freaking moved on to myself, moved on. But so that was probably number one because you, know, you get put to the test. I love you know, the other two deployments, like 87 and 88. I love Panama. I love the jungle. The deployment in 87, I was the weapons squad leader for Alpha Company, 3rd Platoon. I had three great gunners, great guys, you know, great AGs. And we just had a good squad. And so, you know, helping the pig. And even though I was a squad leader, I would often take the gun from, because back then, you didn't, you, there was no straps. Yeah. You didn't hang that shit. You didn't carry it on your shoulder like some Vietnam bullshit. You carried <laughs> You hunk the pig, you carried it, you know? And so I would always take my time and take the gun from somebody, give them some relief. I loved it. I loved it. Crazy thing about Panama, like patrolling in the jungle. The only thing that bothered me was the freaking spider webs because you'd be like going down a trail or whatever. And, and I would always have whatever I was carrying, I had it down in front of me because you would hit these things. They're so freaking big. You'd hit the spider web and it would almost be like, boing, 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 boing. You know, so as soon as I hit one, I'm thrashing and i'm like i hope that fucking spider went that way or that way and not you know i'm like oh man that's pretty crazy and then when i was in 10th group and i, I got deployed to any we talk the marshall islands you know in 1977 as part of that atomic cleanup project you know even though the government lied their asses off and said it's safe you know yeah it was not but the experience of being there going to these islands that hadn't been occupied since like the fifties and working on this project and people are like, why are you even here? You know? And they're like, I don't know, <laughs> I, I, but I made myself useful and just the experience of being there on those islands and walking around. And then you'd see all this ordinance left over from world war two. So you'd find all kinds of shit. So that was a pretty cool deployment. So, so probably find yeah. some like, okay. Sound up there. Yeah. yeah. Any, anything, the ones that I hated had anything to do with winter. Fuck the winter. I don't like the snow. I don't like the cold. I'm like, you know, so, so deployments to the White Mountains, deployments to Fort Drum, you know, in the wintertime for winter warfare training, you know, Camp Ripley, Minnesota, whatever. And any, anything that had to do with winter, freaking hated it. Yeah. It's, I, when I, when I found out that I was coming here to Washington, like I heard people like, oh my God, the rainy season. You know, I'm like, I, it was, Rain season slash cloudy gray. We still have the gray season in Iowa and like Indiana before like September to May, yeah. and just used to it. But prefer the sun. Yeah, oh, I am definitely a warm weather sunshine guy. Yeah, yep, yep. Hawaii was beautiful. Yep, yep, yep. So, all right, so I got another. Um, just a quick question. My friend actually, this was a really good question. So, yeah, we're talking organized crime, right? And we think about like the mafia, and the mafia they have like a, a creed, you know. And then it was very organized to like, I mean, they could call it like, oh yeah, Jimmy, I, I, I don't know why I just about to say Jimmy Pesto from Bob's Burger, but Jimmy Pesto in New York talking to somebody in like Chicago or something like, you know, the, it was that level of organizational structure, almost like military. So yeah. when we're talking about like the Crips and the Bloods, how much of that, like from, I mean, maybe that usually comes from like from the police force or just from observation, like from your job with the DEA. Yeah, well, I think that they, um, 
I, I, they do, they do have some level of organization and they definitely have a, um, you know, they, they, they have a phone tree they could activate because, you know, like the night of the shootout, we know when they got a hundred more gang show up at that house, mm -hmm. somehow they were alerted. They probably have an organizational system where, um, and how they distribute and organize and sell their crack and who gets how much and that sort of a thing. I don't think that they really have an organizational thing where, you know, quite to the level of like mafia or that level of organized crime. Yeah. I had a guy that approached me. I think I was on K Street, just walking down the street. And I had this guy come up to me and he was like, you're a racist. And this is all about white on black. And I'm like, no, it's not. I like, first of all, half my neighbors are black and they were there. It's right or wrong. It has nothing to do with race. You know, and then I said, and it wasn't all white rangers. I think his name Phil Edwards. We had black rangers there too, and Hispanics. It was not a racist thing at all. And then this guy looks at me, but he said, you know, motherfucker, you are messing with the economic foundation. The economic foundation was rooted in dealing crack. That's what this guy was trying to tell me. That, yeah. Oh, man. What? I, I, like, I want to know what kind of economics class. I mean, I understand that there was a profit. I understand. Really, I completely no. understand how crack became a thing. Yeah. I completely understand that. That history, I could, that's a whole other episode. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, tell like, me that. I was like, really? There's a lot more things that to be economically sustainable. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was funny. Yeah. 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 What's, what, what's yeah. the reality is that if people die? Yeah. You know? I know afterwards, once TPD, they decided to get their, the, administration within the police department decided to get their shit together. The city council decided that they better come up with some money to hire a hundred new officers. And then that they, uh, they started actively aggressively going after they did a lot of drug busts and, you know, they finally decided to do something, you know, something they should have done right in the beginning. And, um, so I ended up because I worked the field, a lot of those guys that were patrol officers, you know, at the time of the shootout, you know, move up and become detectives and go to narcotics, whatever, you know, and then now I'm with the DEA and I'm working with these guys. So it's like, I was a house motherfucker. <laughs> I'm like, well, thank you for being there. I really appreciate it. But there was the narcotics conference in Wenatchee, um, and probably during the nineties or so, but late nineties. And there were a bunch of, there were some DEA people there and TPD and I didn't go. I wasn't invited. But one of the supervisors that I was good friends with was at this thing. And then he calls me up and he's like, hey, I just got done with this freaking session at the narcotics conference and you wouldn't believe what I saw. I started watching all these fucking videos of you. The detective from TPD that was actually doing the presentation said that it was the single most significant event that changed all policing policies in Tacoma. That they, after that, found the money to hire officers. They aggressively went after the problem and stomped the shit out of the gang out of the hilltop and moved him to other areas. Yeah. So, so yeah. all right, thought you got a question? Cause if not, I just have a real quick one. Uh, he's answered all of them, if not through the actual uh, stories, but yeah, well, I'm good over here. So I guess like with the stories and then questions were answered. So I got some fun questions now and they're really quick. Okay. So okay. one is, did they ever take the footage from that night? So the footage that was upstairs that was filming? Yeah, no. They never took it? No. So you still have it? Uh, yeah, I have, yeah, um, I actually, yeah, I have some of the, yeah, not all of them, but a bunch of, because we used to you recycle the VHS tape because it was time lapse. So yeah, I still have not recycled some of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, some of it I think I got it off of VHS and I put it on a DVD. Yeah, and then so and some of the pictures from back then. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. yeah that's a be. I'll be at a museum one day. Okay, I had actually a quick anecdote. You correct me if I'm wrong. You were a door gunner, right? When I went to when I went to Six Air Cap. When you're at Fort Hood. Yeah. Okay, so I have a funny anecdote with that. My dad wanted to be one when he was little. Like that's all he wanted to do is be in the yeah. be in the army. His his grandpa Frank was a door gunner in World War II. That's what he wanted to do. Yeah. And my grandpa was like, "Nope, you're gonna you're gonna go to college." And so they're at the recruiter's office. And the recruiter's like, all right, what, what job do you want? My dad goes, I want to be a door gunner. And then he feels the back of his head. My grandpa just slams his head on the table. He's like, he's going to do ROTC at University of Northern Iowa. <laughs> so, yeah. But, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like Fort Hood. A lot of people hated it. But, you know, I think it just, every, every single place that I was ever assigned, you know, you just got to find something. You, know, you got to make the best of it. And there's always something you can do. Pass the time and make it enjoyable. I never, I was never any place that I absolutely hated, unless it was cold. So, yeah. I feel that. <laughs> I feel, but, but the same position that a girl does when she's angry at you when she's cold, exact same, exact yeah. same. You don't like to be cold. Don't don't let your day get cold. Yeah. So, thought. What are your thoughts? You've been kind of quiet. Taking it all in. Yeah, I mean, I can't really top anything he's saying. So, uh. It definitely really awesome story, Bill. Yeah, I don't, I, I have nothing to say. I think it's awesome. You know, I never really thought about it until the 30th anniversary of this. And I, I did a search. I searched my name on YouTube and all kinds of shit pops up. I put my name on it. I think it was like TikTok or something else. And I was like, man, there's a lot of crap up there about me. But it, it was at the 30th anniversary. And, and I thought about all this media stuff and all, you know, all this attention, like the story keep, that keeps getting. I thought back about that fucking colonel who met me in the hallway and told me that, you know, you can forget about ever getting promoted because you've become too well-known for the wrong reasons. And I'd like to ask, I'd be like, you know, well, if it's the wrong reasons, then why is it still out there? But he was right about one thing. And that I never got promoted after that because simply that's my choice because it was in the guard and I was doing what the guy had suggested. I'm doing my one week at a month, two weeks in the summer. And although, you know, that I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I'm putting in the bare minimum, but you got a ranger in the guard. You're like, you're, well, there were a couple of times there was opportunities to get promoted, but when in the guard, when you go from like an E6 to E7, all of a sudden you got to start attending these extra meetings. You don't get paid for it. They put this additional responsibility on you that you're not getting paid for. And I was like, fuck it. You know, I was never going to become a supervisor. Not what I wanted to do. But I would top out as a 1310. And with the years I'd have with DPA, I retired December 31st, 2021 with, uh, because of my combined service, 40 years, nine months, 15 days. So, you know, well, my DEA retirement is good. Yeah. And uh, so, and then, I, you know, so I'm super lucky because as a guy that never really planned for shit, things worked out. Cause I, I got my DEA retirement. I got my military retirement. I got my VA disability collecting social security and I have rental income. Hell yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> you money. know, my, money is not a concern. I mean, I'm not rich, but I ain't poor. That's for sure. Yeah. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. One more question for you. Um, and that is who was the highest ranking person there at the bar? Me. And did you tell everyone to do a police call afterwards? No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> 
no, 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 no. I, I did like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like went around like the next day or whenever we just went out in the yard, picked up brass, whatever I could find. But a lot of it's probably, you know, some of it I never found. It could be buried in the grass. Which, which go through there with a metal detector, I could probably find. So, yeah. My no. dad likes it. So, yeah. One. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll have my fiance take a picture of us afterwards, but I got nothing else. Everybody else, rate, review, subscribe. Bill, do you have an Instagram? <laughs> I have Instagram. I have Instagram. Well, I guess I have to look at it. I don't mean to be technically challenged, but I don't. I never do anything with it. So yeah, I guess I, I should. I think your first post should be some of it like, oh, you should find a picture of Shirley. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, right. yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah we I need Shirley up there. Everyone, thank you, Shirley. I'll frame it. I'll put that in my office. But okay, so everybody, thank you again. Thought. See you next time we record. And skinny belt. Yes, ma'am. All right. Always at the end. Thanks a lot, Bill. Appreciate it. This was amazing. All right. Bye.